hey y'all, it's your pal B-Butts. Just putting at the front end a trigger warning in relation to this episode because there's some discussion of rape, child sexual assault, Satanism, police, maybe some other stuff too. We haven't got all the way in. And what I'm going to do is ask Hacklock to hilariously dub over my voice that if you would like to skip the first story with this content, you should go to... One hour, 36 and 20 seconds. Okay. Love yous. See you for the tail end of the episode. and pay respect to the elders past and present of the Yagara and Tarabul people. Sovereignty was never ceded. And this is Online Mole Patrol, ready for a stroll down internet memory lane. I'm Hacklock, a visual artist and chronically online older millennial. And I'm Brian Butts, lawyer. I barely know her. So we are recording this episode on the go. We have run away to a hotel to get out of town for a night. So I apologize in advance if the audio is a bit weird, but I'm doing the best I can. We just need to wait until things blow over and then we can return to Hacklock's parents' basement. (laughs) Of course. Online mole patrol, offline, off-road, full of pie. Online, off-road, off-color. Hey! Hey! (laughs) So today we have a story from B-Butts. And then we have a bracket battle with a special guest helping us out. And finally, we're going to finish off with some hyperlocal news. Loving it. Loving it. So there's this there's this thing on the internet. Um, I've heard of that place. <laughs> the internet on computers now. Mm-hmm. So there's this thing on the internet that I've been wanting to tell you about for a little while. Um I think I worried that it wasn't funny enough or like that it was too grim, but I think I've decided that it's sufficiently a scandalo to wheel it <laughs> to wheel it out. So um and I don't really have too much to say about like the rest of the internet interacting with with this website itself. Okay. I, I think the content sort of tends to speak to some other stuff i'll take you through it okay so it's it's essentially a blog spot Mm -hmm. it's called the uncertainty principle is the title that's across the top it's got like a picture of bert newton's face and some other people who seem familiar and one might be a politician or something i don't know so is it like a single purpose blog spot i'll just send you a screenshot you might know some of the faces better than i do okay so this screenshot is a cat that looks like a wolf what what did i just send you sitting on the edge of a bathtub you that's the picture of the cat i sent you earlier 
That's not the screenshot. Okay, send me the screenshot. Unsurprisingly, hotel internet is not good. <laughs> Turn it off and on again. Turn me off and on again. That'll fix me. Isn't that what I'm doing all the time? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I've got it. All, all right, right, all right. The uncertainty principle. Oh, yes, we've got Bert Newton. We've got Jeff Kennett. I don't know who the other guys are. I can't really see. That looks like a lady. A lady and another man. A lady and a man. Okay. We're in for an amazing tale. And then we've got a couple of posts posted on Thursday, February 14. Yeah, Valentine's Day 2008. Oh, so they romance story? Uh, I wouldn't say that. Okay. Um. So this blog is made up of... Four posts. Oh my god, is it Bert Newton, Jeff Kennett slash fic? Uh, <laughs> look, let me take let me take you through. Let okay, me take right. you through. Um, so one of the, one of the posts is just references further reading, um, and then the titles of the other posts are Mornington ninety two, the OTO case, and the document. Mm-hmm. So I I think. That the easiest way for me to explain what's going on here is just to take you through the documents. Gentle listener, I want you to know. <laughs> Shush! <laughs> it's really hot in here, so Hacklock took off her shirt. Yes, it's getting hot in here. I took off part of my clothes. So listener discretion. <laughs> it's getting sexy. Anyway, getting back to the grim stuff. I feel like maybe my number one thing is like grim and legal stuff. I'm, I'm going to take you to the OTO case first, okay. the second document. In 2006, the Brax State Labor Government of Victoria, Australia, made controversial amendments to the already controversial Religious and Racial Tolerance Act of 2001. David Palmer, a columnist for the Age newspaper, wrote at the time that the legislation makes the judiciary the referee over religious debate and that instead of its stated aim of protecting religion and securing harmony and tolerance, the Act has created both religious disharmony and the censorship of sincerely held beliefs, religious beliefs by force of law. November of the same year saw the Act's contentious civil and religious aspects put to the test. The Victorian Civil and Administrative Tribunal, VCAT, heard a case brought by members of an occult secret society considered by the tribunal to be a religion, the OTO, Ordo Templi Orientis against a prominent campaigner against child sexual abuse, Dr. Raina Michelson, and her Child Sexual Abuse Prevention Program, Ooh. CSAP. The tribunal hearing found that a document written by Dr. Michelson religiously vilified members of the OTO and ordered that she act to remove the document from the internet. While she may have made valiant efforts to do so, she was sufficiently unsuccessful that the two publishers of a website hosting the document were later found in contempt of court and currently both reside, at the time of writing, I suppose, in 2008, at Her Majesty's pleasure in state correctional facilities. As if this story were not interesting enough in its own right, each of the stakeholders are surrounded by webs of claims and beliefs more alarming than the next. Central to the case were Dr. Michelson's allegations that the OTO is a satanic cult guilty of an ongoing campaign of child abduction, sexual abuse, and murder. Okay, so... 2008, that's a long time after the Satanic Panic as well, I think. Yeah. That was like 80s, 90s. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) I feel like as a community we maybe veered away a little bit from 
time that kind of a view was in vogue. No. Yeah, it wasn't that sort of mass hysteria about satanic cults that we had for a while there. Yeah. Okay. Like other secret societies modelled after the notions of 19th century occultists, the OTO seems to be a group of people who believe it's possible to obtain supernatural powers such as astral travel, ESP, etc. Sweet. (laughs) I'm on board so far. Through the use of ritual, costume, yes, awesome, and hierarchical initiation. While these beliefs and practices aren't so far removed from the more popular versions of Christianity, the notion that the OTO are satanic has some currency among conspiracy theorists and the kind of Christians who also regard Catholicism as satanic, who are probably the only groups to have taken much of an interest. Okay. Yeah. Though she identifies as a Christian, Dr. Michelson is not obviously a member of either of these camps. Indeed, were it not for the associations generated by this document, she would seem a highly credible witness. She holds a PhD in psychology. Her work has won awards from both Victoria University and the Commonwealth Government, and she has been awarded both Young Victorian and Young Australian of the Year awards. Whoa. At she face fancy. Yeah, she, she fancy. She bitch. fancy. Yeah. At face value... She doesn't seem like someone prone to fundamentalist Christian or extremist conspiracy belief. While her claims of satanic murder against the OTO and Illuminati, another supposed secret society, are perhaps the most extreme of those made in her document, they are not the most controversial. She also leveled claims of sexual abuse of children and the production of child pornography against prominent public figures, apparently including Burt Newton and Jeff Kennett. <laughs> Oh, now I see why they're in the picture. Okay. While she seems to recognize and head off the threat of defamation proceedings by employing fairly transparent pseudonyms to name these people, the same does not apply to the OTO. She further claims endemic corruption on the part of the authorities responsible for investigating her claims, the state education department, the police force, right up to and including the commissioner, their investigative organization, the Ethical Standards Division, the Office of Police Integrity, and the Ombudsman responsible for any further investigations. Not only have her attempts to pursue matters through these agencies been fruitless, uh, but she, cl- she claims she and her family have been subjected to ongoing harassment by the police and possibly others. Her attempts to have the matters investigated further by a royal commission have been enduring, tireless, well-documented, and so far unsuccessful. Uh-huh. Though VCAT found in the OTO's favour against Dr. Michelson, she apparently failed to affect its removal and her story remained publicly accessible online. In response, the OTO filed proceedings against the publishers, the website hosting the document, Dyson Divine and Vivian Legg. While the claims and beliefs of the OTO and Dr. Michelson are alarming enough, they pale in comparison to those put forward by Divine and Legg in their now defunct website, GaiaGuys.net. Like G... G-A-I-A. Yeah, okay. Yep. While it seems to have started as a site documenting an administrative dispute involving the ecology of their country property, it seems to have burgeoned into a cornucopia of conspiracy theories, including free energy, Masonic handshakes, and weather machines. (laughs) Like many conspiracy theory websites, it seemed prone to both verbosity and unmanageable design. Not the most authoritative context for such grave claims. (laughs) The OTO's proceedings against Divine and Leg resulted in an order to remove the controversial document, and on the 28th of June 2005, the Australian Capital Territories Magistrates Court ordered them to pay almost $30,000 to the OTO. On the 28th of November 2007, Judge Harbison of VCAT 
um, found that their failure to have removed the offending document was deliberate contempt of court and sentenced both Divine and Leg to nine months prison, which they are now serving in 2008, I suppose. So I guess they're out. Wow. So hang on, the document is... Oh, I... We're going to go to the document. Okay, I'm conf- a little confused about the document, but okay, keep going. It feels like all of the different posts on this kind of intersect and it only really feels like it comes together once you've read all, all of them. All of them? Okay, yeah. all right. Um, I went with reading this one out to you in the first instance so that we would get maybe like a broader view of everything that's going on here mm-hmm. like, or why we're here. Okay. Um, so the case begs many serious questions. Dr. Michelson's claims that the official investigation of her claims has been compromised certainly seemed true. As regards the claims regarding Bert Newton, for example, an article in The Age from November 16, 2004, confirms that a rape investigation against an unnamed TV personality was dropped under circumstances sufficiently dubious as to require further investigation by the Ombudsman. Despite the Office of Public Prosecutions ordering that charges be laid and the investigation proceed, the police decided to drop the case. The victim of the crime complained to the ombudsman that police ignored evidence, failed to investigate, and pressured him into writing a letter exculpating a second offender. The case poses an administrative paradox. The authorities against whom the allegations are leveled are the ones who decide whether the investigation will continue. You would think that the false claims of serious you would think that false claims of serious crimes and misconduct against celebrities and the police would be thoroughly investigated and strenuously defended. While the failure of the relevant authorities to do this does not prove the charges, it certainly lends them some credence. Like the uncertainty principle in physics, which says that the action of investigating subatomic behavior affects its outcome, this case leaves us wondering who we can trust to watch the watchman. So that's the Okay. That's All the right. first post. Yeah. So. so people did do time for not taking documents down off websites. Yeah, so it's it's got this And other I think, people didn't weren't even charged for doing the same thing no other people weren't charged in relation to serious allegations oh right okay. of i think rape yeah um from within the document i'm guessing yeah okay. yeah maybe maybe it'll come together a bit more as we read through it's a long time since i've read through this as well i'll say so maybe i'll go to mornington 92 the first post all right give me this next post all i right. need more context mornington 92 in 1989, Norman and Alison Shulver ran the Mornington Child Care Centre and Nursery School in Parwin Crescent, Mornington, a bayside suburb of Victoria, Australia. In November of that year, a four-year-old girl who attended the centre told her mother that Norman had played with her vagina and bottom. Her mother reported this to the authorities. Norman Shulver denied the allegations and this was found by the police to be sufficient grounds for dropping the matter. Uh-uh. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Alarm bells, alarm bells. Ding-a-ling-a-ling. She yeah. says you did this horrible thing. I didn't. Okay, fair enough. Okay. <laughs> Similar allegations emerged in 1992. One child told her parents that Norman did pee-pee in her mouth. Another boy told his father that Norman put sticks up my bottom. Uh-oh. The Monash University Sexual Assault Centre determined that a number of children who attended the centre had been penetrated by a blunt instrument. Whew, okay. Yeah. This is nasty shit. It's it's pretty grim. Okay. The subsequent investigation by the Police Child Exploitation Unit determined that 24 children alleged abuse while attending the centre. 
The State Government Office of Preschool and Child Care Inquiry heard evidence that in 1992, while attending the centre, a number of children had been taken in a car to a nearby house, undressed by adults, photographed and videotaped while naked, forced to play sexual games and urinated and defecated upon by adults. The adults, it was heard, wore masks and funny clothes, including police uniforms. This sounds a lot like the case that kicked off the satanic panic stuff in the US. I don't know so much about... Like, I know that satanic panic was a thing. Yeah. And I, broad strokes, I know what the deal was, but I, I don't know, like, the sequelae of how it unfolded, culturally speaking. Um, it's been a while since I've watched the docos, but I remember there was an instigating, not, like, there was a particular case where a childcare centre, uh, there was allegations of abuse, but also of people dressing up and doing ritualistic things to the children at the childcare centre. And people got so upset that the police weren't able to find evidence that they did things like dug up the ground, like underneath the building, knocked bits of the building down to try and find evidence of secret basements where these rituals and things had been done and they found nothing. Oh, man. Um, Yeah, it's... There was a greater panic. There was, like, stuff on talk shows, people going on, like, late-night talk shows and talking about recovered memories of things that had happened. There was a lot of it going on in the culture at the time. And also it was being used by a lot of politicians as leverage to bring in harsher crime and punishment stuff. Yeah. Um, And it was also being used to kind of control people with mental illness by saying, oh, they have a connection we can control the teenagers. We can't let them out at night because we found this thing spray painted and it's a satanic symbol and all this kind of stuff. Like it, it was kind of everywhere all at once. But yeah, there was a childcare center that was quite central to a lot of that panic, which is what this is reminding me of. Okay. okay I'll sorry. take you through more. I'll Continue. take you through more. Anne Sherry, who chaired the 1992 inquiry by the Office of Preschool and Childcare, found that the Shulvers were not appropriate people to be running a childcare center having at least allowed the abuse to take place. She further found that there is substantial, there is a substantial amount of evidence that the person or persons who actually committed the acts of abuse may have included Norman Shulver. In 1994, the Crimes Compensation Tribunal awarded damages of up to $20,000 to each of the 30 applicants over this case. Clearly neither this tribunal nor the Office of Preschool and Child Care Inquiry felt there was any doubt that serious sexual abuse of children aged three and four had taken place. The medical evidence alone seems quite conclusive. Despite this, Victoria Police failed to press charges against the Shulvers or anyone else. Were it not for the alleged involvement of members of Victorian Police, this case would have undoubtedly have been aggressively investigated, charges laid, and the Shulvers and or any other perpetrators would have received significant prison sentences. That this did not happen and that members of the police force were implicated is surely no coincidence. What did happen, other than the deregistration of the Shulvers as childcare centre proprietors, is nothing. Over the intervening 16 years, Police have neglected to interview witnesses and have apparently destroyed evidence. Witnesses have been harassed and had death threats made against them and their families. That police had mishandled the investigation became so clear that in 2002, Commissioner Christine Nixon referred relevant complaints to the Victorian Ombudsman, Dr Barry Perry. This did little to stem interference with the investigation and it continued to be plagued with serious problems. 
The most glaring examples centre on two pieces of crucial evidence. The first is the identity of the owner of the house in Mornington, at which the abuse was alleged to have occurred, namely that it was registered to a member of Victorian police. The second is a videotape of the abuse being carried out by men in police uniforms. Oh boy. Okay, yep. Yeah. Information about both of these items was delivered to an investigator from the Ethical Standards Department. The investigator claimed not to have received them and not to have spoken to relevant witnesses. He persisted in this deception until his telephone records were accessed and proved he was lying. The videotape subsequently went missing from the police evidence locker. The Ombudsman's report was damning about the investigation. The ESD investigator was removed from the investigation. Two detectives were told they were going to be transferred to other squads, but after a threat of industrial action by the police union, they were not and remained in the sexual crimes squad. Shortly before he was due to report his findings, Barry Perry suffered serious health complications and resigned from the post. Mainstream media reported he suffered a stroke while walking alone on a friend's country property one afternoon and was not reported missing until 9pm that night. Corruption investigator Raymond Hoser contends that the ombudsman was bashed and left for dead. Holy crap. This is a lot. Yeah. I'm sorry, listeners. Like, this is a lot. (laughs) I really wanted to tell you this one. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's, I mean, there's a lot of shit going on here that I had no idea about. I'd sort of, um, like, pitched it to you maybe a few weeks back and, and I think we'd I'd sent you the website, but it, it's like, a, it's a lot. Mm. And I'd said maybe it's a bit too grim and mm. I don't know what bullshit I did instead. <laughs> <laughs> and then, like, you know, uh, this podcast is essentially a time machine, gentle listener. So mm. we're actually recording this the day before New Year's Eve and... Um, you know, let's get real. I find Christmas really quite difficult, so I haven't prepared anything else. So I went, you know, let's just go through these posts. It's still a story from the internet. It's something uh, internet related. It's a thing talking about the impact of the internet as well. Yeah, in so like, I, I think in- the internet is being used to uh, maybe on the part of some people to as a tool to deal with a sense that these allegations aren't being properly dealt with. And then there's legal intervention in relation to the publication of those materials on the internet. Yeah, regaining and, some sort of power by, yeah, having, by and, having an internet platform. Yeah, and then you've got these people who were so unwilling to take this stuff down mm. that they ended up in prison. Oh, boy. Yep. Allegedly. I've made no independent <laughs> inquiries okay. into the correctness or the truthfulness of what is set out mm-hmm. on this website, aside from clicking through to links in the references section. Okay. But broadly, it seems legit. There's, there's some stuff out there, like in, in the links, like in other media outlets that tends to support some of, if I remember correctly, there might be some writing in here where the author of the blog seems to be trying to say to you, if you look at this, here's the, here's the stuff that supports that this stuff might have happened. Anyway, so just to jump back in, corruption investigator Raymond Hoser contends that the ombudsman was bashed and left for dead. The report subsequently issued by his successor in 2004 was described by the aged newspaper as damning and alleged serious misconduct on the part of police investigators. Despite its finding that police investigators had compromised the case by failing to obtain statements and evidence, 
by having mishandled what evidence they were given and probably by lying under oath, Assistant Commissioner for Crime, Simon Overland, took solace in the fact that the investigation did not find police force members categorically guilty of corruption or criminal misconduct. Oh, wonderful for him to find such solace. In 2005, he categorized the findings against the two officers as minor failings and no further action was taken against them. Uh, wow. The Ombudsman's report... (laughs) Our system is so fucked up. (laughs) ...was not made public, ostensibly for fear it would identify the victims. (sighs) Right, okay. Clearly the state government has failed to properly investigate and prosecute well-substantiated cases of child sexual abuse on a large scale. Cases in which the police themselves seem to be implicated... The only conclusion a reasonable person can draw from this is that there is something decidedly rotten in the state of Victoria. Hmm. There are people who are at large in Australian society today, apparently including members of the Victorian police, who are free to sexually abuse children with impunity. What picture of the world are those 24 children left with? How can their parents explain to them what happened and how it was dealt with? Until the perpetrators of this crime and those who have obstructed its investigation are brought to justice, no one can have faith in the Victorian government, its judiciary, or its police force. Police Commissioner Christine Nixon and Premier John Brumby should be called to account for this grave miscarriage of justice. I think that's the two other people on the banner. I reckon you're right. Yep. Okay. Wow. All right. So that's two out of three. Yeah. Yeah. So... Then the third post is called the document. Again, these are all posted on the same day, February 14, 2008. The document. Gentle listener, let me reassure you that we are currently recording in Queensland. Because. (laughs) Okay, why is that relevant? Publication of this document may be illegal under Victorian law. Okay, nice ass covering there. I'm I'm not this kind of lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) I thought uh, if I do any crimes, I can just say um, my best friend's a lawyer. It's fine. I took a decided disinterest in criminal law <laughs> at uni. I, I, got, like, I got, you're not my best friend. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, we were at a pool party. I don't know if I told you this. We were at a pool party. And um, Hacklock's sister-in-law came up to me and was like, oh, my God, I'm so happy to meet you because you're Hacklock's best friend. <laughs> <laughs> she's I mean, met my best friend. She seems she she seemed like she was pretty wrecked, but it was a, <laughs> and I understand that you have a best, best friend. Yeah, but you're like uh, a new really bestie friend. Like you can have more than one best friend, but also like. Yeah, I have so many best friends. My other best friend has been my best friend for a very, very long time. Um, She is an incredible person and my best friend. My Um, best best friend's a total piece of shit and I love that. (laughs) (laughs) No, just kidding. She's great. Uh, But um, yeah, but my sister-in-law has obviously already met her a number of times. Yeah. Yeah. You it was very fresh it was blood. Very sweet. I felt very welcomed to the pool party. She was lit. She was in fine she form. She was litty. <laughs> we were trying to leave and she turned around fully clothed and jumped in the pool and went, no! <laughs> no. Publication of this document may be illegal under Victorian law. If the claims it makes against individuals, to the extent that they are identified, 
are untrue, it is libelous. The claims it makes against the OTO, ostensibly a religious organisation, have been found to constitute religious vilification. Divine and Leg refrained from removing it from their website after they were ordered by a court to do so. For this, they were found guilty of contempt and are in prison for nine months. I guess if we have any strife, we'll just take take the episode down. Hey, yeah, yeah, we can do that. I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna be in contempt of court. You know, my first duty is to the court. Of course. So I'll just do whatever they say all the time. Considerable effort has been made to ensure that this document is not available online. Wow, 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 wow. Online Mole <laughs> Patrol. Wow, wow. Do we count? We're not actually publishing the document. We're publishing audio information. of us reading it out. It's so I different. Guess, I guess. The history of the document, as far as I can make out, is as follows. It was originally written by Dr. Raina Michelson, frustrated by her inability to have these matters properly investigated by the relevant authorities and published on her Child Sexual Abuse Prevention Program website was also obtained by American conspiracy researcher David Icke. Oh, no. And published on his website. Wow, we've been talking about him a lot lately. Oh, man. From one of these sources, it was obtained by Divine and Leg and published on their GaiaGuys.net website. Subsequent to proceedings by the OTO, in which it was found to constitute religious vilification, it was removed from all these sites. I thought David Icke would be outside of their reach, but whatever. Maybe he thought it wasn't worth the fight. Yeah, maybe. I be- I don't follow a lot of David Icke stuff, so I don't know. When. He tends to mm. be willing to pull down. I believe the public interest in these claims being aired outweighs the chance of this document defaming the individuals identified or vilifying the OTO. It is even possible that the proceedings against Dr. Michelson and Divine and Leg by the OTO were vexatious and designed to remove not only the offending claims against the OTO, but the wider claims of police corruption and abuse themselves from the public sphere. The original document attempted to protect its author against defamation proceedings by disguising its subjects beneath, sometimes transparent, pseudonyms. Online sources have, perhaps speculatively, attributed the following identities to the pseudonyms used. I do like coming up with fake names when I'm... (laughs) Even just for this, like, making up pseudonyms for the, some of the stories that I've told. Like, sometimes I just pick something very bland and, and fine. And every now and then I'm like, maybe I should be call them, like, Galatriel. I painted somebody's fingernails last night. And I told them that when I was little, what I wanted my job to be was the person who names the nail polish. I colors. want that job. <laughs> I want to name paints and I want to name nail polishes. It's fair to want these things. And hair dye colours. Uh, Anything related to colour naming. I'll take that job. See that colour up there on the wall on that painting? Yeah. I'm going to call that smoosh. Like, look, I'll allow it. Gentle or we could call it, um, hmm, let's call it. I really think it's in the neighborhood of institutional green. Aegean smoke. Aegean smoke. <laughs> Vaginal smoke. <laughs> That's the bottom color in the painting. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Gentle listener, there's some very ordinary art in this uh, holiday apartment, I'll tell you that. No judgment, but judgment. It's not good. I, 
I'm stare. I'm staring at it because it's directly in front of my uh, line of sight, and there's parts of it that just don't work. I think the person who painted it thought that it would be really sexy, but I have some problems with the cultural appropriation situation that seems to be happening. Actually, there's a lot of stuff in this hotel room that, that from appropriated from all different cultures. Oh, hell to the yes. Uh, like yeah. the, the collection has no theme running through it other than culturally appropriate. <laughs> yeah, totally. Okay. So uh, the writer writes, it is frustrating that pseudonyms have been used to disguise the names of public officials because as far as I can tell, most of the claims made against them are unlikely to be defamatory and are indeed matters of public record. Clearly, the author would have been better off disguising the identity of the OTO. <laughs> <laughs> Title. The Pedophile and Satanic Network in Australia Involving Government Officials, Leading Politicians, Television Executives, Top TV Presenters... And the police. By, quote-unquote, Sarah Connor. The following is a summary of events that detail the infiltration of a high-profile, powerful group of child sex offenders into my child abuse prevention organisation. What was uncovered as a result of this infiltration was the existence of an Illuminati-based child pornography and pedophile ring that is operating in Australia under the protection of senior-ranking members of Victoria Police. The members of the network include senior management and executives from a major television network, media celebrities, high-ranking politicians, police officers in charge of pedophile and child pornography investigations, senior management representatives from the Department of Education, directors of child-focused service clubs, wealthy businessmen, and others. I've tried to keep the account as brief as possible while trying to include all relevant information. The description covers events from 1995 until present. The names of individuals have been changed. Department of Education protects pedophile teacher. In 1995, I started running Australia's first child sexual abuse prevention program in schools. This school-based program teaches children how to protect themselves from sexual abuse and what to do if someone tries to sexually abuse them. The program also teaches adults how they can best protect children under their care from sexual abuse. My assistant and I were at a particular high school in the northern region working with Year 9 boys. We received a note written anonymously by one of the boys asking, What do you do if you get raped by a teacher and no one will believe you? What happens if you get raped and you enjoy it? Later during that day, we were asked exactly the same question by a boy who was flushed red with embarrassment. I replied, Talk to the student welfare coordinator, to which he replied, What if he is the one who won't believe you? I emphasize that it's important to keep telling until someone believes you. During the day, my assistant and I noticed strange behavior of a particular teacher called Dick Newman. Later that afternoon, I learned that the car I had been driving had been rammed in the school's car park. Witnesses reported that the car had been rammed deliberately by a man who then drove off very quickly. The local police were called and ran a license check on the, on the car and discovered that the number plate was fake. They then took photos of the crime scene using the school's camera. Later, it was revealed that a teacher was under suspicion of sexually abusing the children at the school and then organizing the ramming of my car to intimidate me. The photos went missing and no further action was taken. <sighs> Dick Newman was the only person at the school who knew my car as he had taken it upon himself to show me to my car to give me directions to the shops during a break in classes. 
It was organized that the boys in year nine would be interviewed in order to find the victims and give them appropriate support. Three people, including myself, my assistant, and a counselor from a sexual assault center, were responsible for conducting the interviews. At the completion of the interviews, there were concerns for approximately 12 of the boys. These concerns related specifically to sexual assault by a teacher at the school. However, by this stage, over a week had passed since the initial program, it was clear that the boys had been threatened. For example, when I interviewed the boy who had asked the question about sexual abuse by a teacher and not being believed, he huddled into a fetal position, started crying, and said he could not tell me what happened. When I asked him why he couldn't tell me, he replied that he'd been threatened with his life. His best friend told me he would never tell what had happened. Sometime after this, we organized a theater company performance for the students on the topic of sexual abuse. While the children were seated and waiting for the play to begin, Dick Newman made an unscheduled visit to the hall. He proceeded to stand in front of each of the boys we had identified as potential victims and stare them down. The boys who had been happy and laughing in the excitement of waiting for the play to begin went grey with fear. Finally, I stood in front of Dick Newman so he could not intimidate the boys any further. I was then told that no further action would be taken as the boys had not named the offender. This seems quite blatant. Yeah, I don't know. Hey. Mm. What year did um what year did she say this was? Nineteen ninety five. Um, what year okay. was Teacher's Pet going down in? Did what you listen? That? Did you listen to Teacher's Pet? No, I Let heard me... about it, but I didn't actually yeah. listen to it. Look no, that up. I listened to that one. I'm not going to go into details, but a relevant side quest. When I was in primary school, there was a teacher that we took to court for uh, sexual assault reasons. Yeah, and we were very lucky at our school that we had very supportive. Um, uh, higher up staff that people that went to them immediately involved police in things like they were believed like yeah. straight away yeah. Uh, and there was court cases and so on and it was pretty fucked up but it seems like from other people that I've talked to who went through schooling about the same time I did that that was kind of rare Teacher's Pet, without listening to it or looking it up, um, and it was it was a podcast released by The Australian, and they haven't got it right here, but it was a specific journalist who put it together. Yeah. They're talking about it relating to a cold case, which has been unsolved for 36 years. So I think it's, what's 40 years ago? It's 2020 now. I think it's in the 70s or the 80s mm. where it's happening. And one of the features of how things were happening in Teacher's Pet that really struck me was this idea that it was like an open secret mm. at the school that um, so Lyndon Chris Dawson? It may have also helped in our case. The teacher involved was a outside teacher. It wasn't like a, a long-term teacher. It was someone who'd only been there a very short amount of time. So perhaps they hadn't already established a network of support amongst their peers my school was um, in the Royal Commission recently in relation to, I think, two teachers. Mm. And I remember more specifically one particular teacher who was still sort of current in the mythos of the school. So I'd never heard of the other teacher, I don't think, Yeah, who was named in the documents from the Royal Commission. But I had heard about this second one. Um, and... He had been, I think, accused at a different school. 
Yeah. And had been brought to our school by the principal. And so... Like, yeah, our guy had also been accused at a separate school, it turned out. So I think that when I was at school, action was commenced against, like, the, the peak body that controls... Like the school board? You know how there's probably, like, a Catholic schools association and an Anglican schools association. Yeah. Like, one, one of those okay. overarching umbrella organisations. Maybe some action had been brought against them or brought against the school. And at that point, they promoted my teacher out. Uh, wow. Promoted my principal out of the school yeah. and they had been there for like 20, 20, 30 years. Like a really, they were the second principal that the school had ever had and they were promoted out mm. during my time at the school, though the offending I think had happened in the nineties. And it's but while they were the principal. So the stuff that went down, like I read the report from the Royal Commission, it seemed to be that the suggestion and the suspicion was that my principal absolutely knew the nature of the allegations, had chosen to bring this teacher into the school at a time when he had lost a job because of those allegations having been made against the other school and that he probably tended to know about what was going down at our school. Yeah. So they got him out of the way. They got another principal. I heard rumours that she embezzled money. The next one. Wow, whole bunch of winners there. Oh man, yeah, I don't know. I'm not in education. What can I say? It's just layer upon layer of grimness. Mm. Subheading, another subheading. Mm-hmm. Program infiltrated by pedophile board of management. In 1996-97, I was named Young Victorian of the Year for community service and later Young Australian of the Year for community service. One of the judges was a well-connected government official, Ron Snide. And another one was the general manager, Bob Sisterly, of one of the major Australian television networks, Network X. After winning this award, Bob Sisterly approached me and said he had never heard of this terrible crime, child sexual abuse, before meeting me. He what, said the concept of the crime? <laughs> yeah. Or this particular one? Uh, I think the concept of the crime is... What the hell? Yeah. Oh, you poor sheltered baby. He said he wanted to help me get my program into every school in Victoria within five years and said he had the money and the connections to do this. He said he would raise half a million dollars in six weeks and have it matched within six months. He said that he and Ron Snide would set my program up as an independent organization and that they would establish a board of management consisting of all their powerful and influential friends. Ron Snide would become president of the organization and Bob Sisterly, vice president. I agreed to Bob Sisterly's proposal as it sounded as if he would enable the program to receive substantial funding and therefore be able to reach many more children within Victoria and across Australia. I did not consider for a second that Bob Sisterly and Rob Snide could have been deceiving me in order to get control of and ultimately to destroy the child sexual abuse prevention program that I had developed. The board members and supporters that they brought to the organisation were very powerful and from the highest echelons of society. These included the editor-in-chief of a major Australian newspaper, the former head of a child-focused service club, the head of the largest agricultural society in Victoria, the partner from a well-known law firm, an extremely wealthy businessman and former Network X board member, the head of a well-known accounting firm, the head of a successful advertising company and others. Despite having such wealth and powerful connections, in the two-year period that they served on the board, they organised only one donation of $25,000. The board members subsequently despised the donor and ostracised him from their community, which at the time I thought was incredibly ungrateful, 
This was compared with over $200,000 my family and I raised during the fundraising ourselves in the same time period. Furthermore, my efforts to secure funding were being actively sabotaged. For example, after an interview on the Channel 9 Today show, not Network X, I was contacted by a well-known multinational company who said that they would like to fund my program. This well-known company was located in Sydney, and as Bob Sisley frequently went to Sydney, I asked if he would have a meeting with them on behalf of our organisation. He agreed. However, when he returned from the meeting, he said for me not to have much hope and not to contact them for six months while I sought out a new tax issue. I found this very odd, as they had been so keen to fund the organisation when I had spoken to them. I phoned the woman who I had spoken to and she confirmed my suspicions. She had been at the meeting and Bob Sisterly had told the company not to bother funding us as the organisation won't be around in six months. Needless to say, we did not receive the funding. During this time period, I was without any income for four months. Many other people would have quit and sought other employment. However, I believed passionately in my cause and did not give up much to the chagrin of Bob Sisterly. On one occasion, he said to me, you've given up so much to this cause in your life. Why don't you just give up? You've achieved more good in your short life than many do in a long lifetime. Why don't you retire down in the country? I was 28 years old. (laughs) Why don't you go away? Go on. Just give up. Oh, my God. When I replied that I would never give up, he stormed away. I was confused by this behavior, but as I trusted him, I did not think too much more about it at the time. The board really? It's, that's pretty rough behavior. Sorry, continue. The board members achieved one other in-kind donation. It was the use of a Honda CRV vehicle. I appreciated the use of the vehicle while I had it, approximately 18 months. However, I later discovered that the head of the company that donated it, a close friend of Don Snide, had just been convicted of child sex offenses. Oh. These offenses included the production of child pornography. Oh. Oh, tainted goods. Yeah. yeah. Um, Subheading. Meeting with very powerful pedophile politician. After winning the award, I had a meeting with a very powerful state politician, Greg Neckett. At that time, Greg Neckett was the most powerful person in the state. As well as being politically powerful, he also had key business interests, including in the media. When I was first introduced to him, He was staring at me quite sleazily. After he asked what work I do and my response child abuse prevention, he would not make eye contact at all and sought to exclude me from the meeting in a very bullying manner. It is well known that Greg Neckett was a serious domestic violence offender and that his wife was frequently being admitted to shelters in secret. However, given the power and status of Mr. Neckett, the issue was never raised in the mainstream media. That's weird. Funny That's suspicious. I think, um, oh, I must be so naive. It was only, um, when Barnaby Joyce, um, his affair and the baby and stuff with, um, Vicky Campion, when all of that stuff came through, that was the first time I heard about there being a policy amongst, um, reporters that you just don't tend to report on the private lives of politicians unless you think it's really sort of meaningfully connected to policy issues. I, in many regards, respect, because I feel like there is a lot of crossover of people's privacy in, there in the public eye yeah, I that think... I don't think is really relevant for the public to know. I... But then there are things that politicians, like, especially they use morality 
yeah. in their jobs. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So broadly, I agree with you, but the, it becomes a question of how do you define what's relevant to mm. matters of public policy and what yeah. isn't. Yeah. I was later to be informed by a very reliable and trusted source from the child welfare field that there is a file containing serious child sex offences against boys by Greg Neckett, but because of his enormous power in Victoria, the police would not act on it. I also discovered from a former sex worker that Greg Neckett frequently paid St Kilda boy sex workers for sex and that one of the boys talked too much to the wrong people and ended up dead with an accidental heroin overdose. Oh, Jesus. It was also alleged that Greg Neckett intentionally abused the boys in unusual situations, for example, in a helicopter, so that if it ever got out, the boys' testimonies would seem unbelievable. This, of course, is exactly the same strategy used by offenders in the U.S. Child Care Center cases. Mm, is that the satanic panic thing? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, uh-huh. uh. Interestingly, Greg Neckett has recently commissioned a statue of himself as a gargoyle. <laughs> That has been included. <laughs> See, he's evil. There's a statue. Gargoyle, duh. <laughs> I mean, I'd love to be rendered in sculptural form as a gargoyle as well. But I'd love to be rendered in any form. Yeah, because I'm so self-involved. I'm kind of tempted to never draw you. It's okay because I never asked. <laughs> Later, I met with another politician from the same political party who told me that Craig Neckett is really into that, bracket, child sex abuse, close bracket. This same politician told me that in the late 1980s and early 1990s, the police were getting too close to the truth, too close to people in high positions of power who were also pedophiles. And so the unit that had been established to investigate organized pedophilia was shut down. Soon after, a pedophile police officer was put in charge of investigating these offences to ensure that the truth never got out and that this high-ranking network of offenders would never get caught. Subheading. Network X produces pornography. One day I was working on a computer at Network X. As I was working, Bob sisterly approached my computer and put a floppy disk in the machine. He said, look at this, and proceeded to bring up images of pornography involving humans and Sesame Street characters. <laughs> sounds so 90s <laughs> oh my god shocking i was very embarrassed and did not know how to react i asked where did you get that and he replied oh someone put it together here indicating that network x was producing pornography wait so was it real life actors dressed up as sesame characters or was it sesame street characters or was it like animated i know as much as you do I'm assuming this is like Devi- I assumed this was like deviant art level images of pornography involving humans and Sesame Street characters. Mm. Mm. I was later to discover that Network X is also producing child pornography and is, in fact, an Illuminati-owned and run television station. Okay, we're getting pretty far out here. I was also later to discover that Bob Sisterly is a passionate member of the Illuminati. Quote unquote religion. Subheading Bob Sisterly introduces me to Mr. Television. After winning the Young Australian of the Year, I was invited to go on one of the morning television shows on Network X. This was before my association with Bob Sisterly. Ironically, after my association with Bob Sisterly, Network X did not do any promotion of my work at all. 
It is hosted by one of the most famous and long-serving television personalities in Australia, Ernie Old. I was asked to prepare a number of questions that Ernie would ask me. I prepared very straightforward questions that focused on the work, so I was quite shocked when he glared at me and said, Are you doing this because of what happened to you? Uh... I was also stunned when he refused to allow the phone number of my organisation to be presented on air for donations. When I later became closely associated with Network X, Bob Sisterly would often say to me, You know, Ernie Old really likes you. He really likes you. This surprised me because of my experience of Ernie Hold had been the exact opposite of that. Interestingly, Bob Sisterly also frequently said to me, Greg Neckett, the very powerful politician, really likes me since I started helping you. He has me sit next to him at all of the formal functions we attend now. This was indeed true. Greg Neckett, Bob Sisterly and Rob Snide were all the best of friends. After my experience with Network X, I subsequently discovered that in the late 1980s, Ernie Old was frozen out of the television industry due to allegations of his involvement in the production of child pornography. Although his alleged involvement in this activity was well publicized at the time, he was never charged and about a year later he joined Network X. Since then, he has continued to play a significant role in the production of child pornography in Australia. One contact who works on the set of the morning program hosted by Ernie Old finds the work to be very distressing as other on-air talent are very open about their pedophilia. This contact is disgusted as his sister is a victim of child sex offences. However, he does not want to publicly disclose the information as he will lose his job. In addition to the above, I am now in contact with a boy who has paid $2,000 a night to have sex with Ernie Old from the ages of 15 to 18 years. Subheading. Introduction to the Pedophile Police. There is a specialised police unit in Victoria that, since the 1990s, is responsible for investigating all child sex offences involving multiple victims, offences committed by teachers, as well as child pornography offences. I had a meeting with the head of this unit, Detective Senior Sergeant Nick Flanagan, and was very surprised when the first thing he said to me was, Does Greg Neckett know about your program? Greg Neckett should know about your program. I found this a very odd thing for him to say as an opening statement, and especially so given the information known about Greg Neckett's alleged sexual abuse of boys. I thought it impossible for this police officer not to know of these things given his specialist role. Subheading. Relationship between Nick Flanagan and Bob Sisterly. Just butt in for a second. This, the satanic panic level connection is sort of, and the Illuminati stuff is bringing up like complicated feelings where there is absolutely pedophilia that goes on. There is absolutely people using their powerful positions within organizations to perhaps get away with awful sexual assault behaviors. There is definitely, especially I think there used to be, um, uh, not through the internet, now through the internet, ways for people who are pedophiles to contact each other and create community. Mm-hmm. But it's a favoured topic of conspiracy theorists to use the that awful crime and the fear and the paranoia around it to push other conspiracy theories and 
Yeah. <laughs> it makes this stuff. I would tell. Where we need to believe people and believe victims, we also need to be aware that people will use stories of sexual assault and abuse to lend credence to other conspiracies and stuff. So. Like QAnon is yeah, very much sure. these days of the save the children angle with stories of like these underground celebrity and politically run rings of pedophiles. Well, I mean, let's also think about there's two things I think I want to raise. Um, old mate who didn't hang himself. What's his bloody name? Old mate who didn't hang himself. Oh, uh, Jeffrey Epstein. Yeah, Epstein. So I think there's sufficient evidence on the public record to suggest that there is a pretty high level organized crime relating to uh, sex trafficking of children. Mm. The other thing, remember that allegation that she sets out about them about some of the instances of abuse happening in really unlikely scenarios, like in a helicopter, yeah, to reduce people's willingness to, to believe, believe the entirety of the allegations. Now, mm. wouldn't it be a similar kind of strategy to introduce the idea of the Illuminati and satanic abuse, satanic ritual abuse? To undermine the stories? Yeah. Yeah, that's also possible. Yeah. I hadn't thought of that before. Mm. Because I'm not sure that I really, I'm not sure that I really like believe in the Illuminati. <laughs> <laughs> right? I do not believe in the Illuminati. Um, I believe that there are probably networks of powerful people getting up to no good, you know, yeah. as per Jeffrey Epstein, etc. But I also don't think they have the time or inclination to do the kind of uh, incredibly complicated and expensive underground shit that people seem to think that they're doing. Because I don't have much of an interest in, because I'm not particularly compelled by conspiracy theories relating to the Illuminati, I'm not really sure what people think is happening. That, but I, I think I have an appreciation that the broader idea is that you know every you know the shadowy figures in a hidden room mm. moving the pieces on the chessboard, and I don't think it's quite like that. But like I, I think power organizes itself in. Mm looks out for its own interests and stuff. Yeah. I don't know. I think in some cases we ascribe more power to people who have power than they actually have and more intelligence to people who are um, famous, like that, they, that they're much cleverer than the regular person because we <sighs> see them on these pedestals. I don't know. I'm talking shit now. I just think it's worth, at the same time that I absolutely don't want to undermine anybody's stories, it is worth knowing that people can use stories of abuse for um, pushing their own agendas. I suppose one of the things to note here is that um, like the author of the document isn't alleging that they've been specifically victimised themselves. So, no. Like, um, that might some change the, level. The, the treatment of survivor story stuff around this. Mm. Pedophile police called in to investigate pedophile teacher and other offences. 
1999, fresh allegations were made against pedophile teacher Dick Newman. This time, teenage girls reported that Dick Newman approaches students and asks them to meet him after school to meet Winston, the baseball bat. Ew. They indicated that Winston was Dick Newman's penis. They reported that other students were very affected by this behavior and some had taken to writing warnings to each other on the desks, such as, if Newman asks you to meet Winston, don't do it. It's his dick. At last, Newman had been named and the victims were prepared to come forward. Newman admitted to these offenses and received five sessions of counseling. I then discovered that Newman had conveniently taken up a position, a temporary position in a country school, like a priest being moved from parish to parish when things get too hot. The principal at the original school had not told the new school the circumstances surrounding his transfer and had instead said, poor Dick, he's had a terrible time lately. That was the case with the teacher at our school? Well, that was what happened with the teacher at our school. It yeah. was the second school he'd been at after he'd been run out of the first one. Uh, and this was like, this he moved states as well. And oh so apparently God. the state education boards and stuff yeah. don't talk to each other actually i think that that was in the, that might have been in the report that i read um from the royal commission about my school as well that mm. that, that might have been part of the complexion with the other teacher that i wasn't so familiar with um i later discovered that this principal was an expert liar and had gone over and above the call of duty in protecting this pedophile teacher at this new country school it was not long before further allegations of child abuse by newman came out Incidents of verbal abuse, such as calling students fucking stupid, were revealed as well as physical assaults, such as dragging students out of the classroom and throwing them on the floor. In another physical assault, Newman grabbed the 12-year-old boy by the neck and held him by his neck against a wall. Newman admitted to the latter assault, wrote a letter of apology, and provided financial compensation for the loss of a necklace. With Newman being named and various offences being admitted to, I reported his behaviour for criminal investigation to Nick Flanagan's unit. It also provided the opportunity for the 1995 offences to be reinvestigated. However, Nick Flanagan interviewed only two of the 12 boys on the list from 1995 and reported to me that as the first two boys did not disclose anything, the others would not be interviewed. In relation to the offences against the teenage girls, Flanagan said that at 15 years of age, the girls were too young and he did not want to distress the girls' families by bringing up the topic of child sexual abuse. Therefore... What is your fucking job? (laughs) Therefore, these offences by Newman would not be investigated either. I could not believe what I was hearing. Child sex offences are offences because they happen against children. And at 15, the victims were hardly at the young end of the age spectrum. It was a completely nonsensical reason for not investigating Dick Newman. As for the physical assaults, Flanagan said that he was not responsible for such investigations, so those cases would not be pursued either. Interestingly, Bob Sisterly also frequently said to me that Greg Neckett, the powerful politician, really likes me since I started helping you. The same thing. He said, you do not understand, don't you? It was not a question, and I replied that I did not. However, Nick Flanagan was not prepared to discuss the situation amicably, and Dick Newman evaded investigation by both the police and the unit established to investigate such offences and by Department of Education. Further dealings with pedophile police. While at the country school, disclosures of child sexual abuse by other offenders were made by many children. The disclosures centred on two offenders in town, the specialised unit arrived to investigate. However, the main victim of sexual abuse, Sammy, a 12-year-old girl, did not attend school that day. She arrived after school on her bike and her face was visibly disfigured. I was told by her best friend that she had been bashed, but her friend would not tell me who did this to Sammy. Her smashed-in face was warning enough to all of the children. The police later went to her house where she fainted upon seeing them. She did not disclose any abuse at all. Despite the fact that her face was visibly disfigured and swollen from a recent assault, the police did not pursue the matter further. 
The specialized police unit totally destroyed any chance of the truth being revealed and the victims receiving the justice they deserve. For example, they left children waiting all day to be interviewed and did not end up interviewing them, including witnesses to attempted child rape. They interviewed one 12-year-old victim, Lucy, and totally intimidated her. When the girl indicated that the police didn't believe her the first time she told them what happened to her, one officer leant right over the top of her, pointed his finger directly in her face and hissed, Don't say that. You don't know that. I was shaking and I was an adult sitting next to the girl. As she walked out of the interview room, the officer said in a voice loud enough for the girl to hear, We have serious concerns about the truth of what this girl is saying. It had the desired effect. Lucy burst into tears and said, The police don't believe me. I don't want to keep going. The welfare coordinator who was also in the room during the interview and who was also an experienced child sexual assault counsellor and child protection officer said to me, that wasn't an interview. That was designed to stop a child from talking. Wow. The police did not pursue the case any further on the following grounds. No one would believe Sammy if she disclosed the abuse in future as she hadn't disclosed the first time. The fact that she'd been bashed would not be seen as relevant to her hesitancy to disclose. What? That's in brackets with a question mark. Okay. Lucy had led all of the children on to make up stories of sexual abuse for fun, even though the children were visibly traumatized. In relation to the sexual abuse of a boy, quote unquote, men tried to touch other men's penises after football matches all the time. So it was not worthy of pursuing. And finally, there was not enough evidence. This is despite the fact that there were witnesses to the attempted rapes of the children and the testimonies of many victims provided significant corroboration. Also, many adults reported having been sexual, sexually abused by the same offenders when they were children, but the police refused to interview these adults. It goes on. The case is stonewalled by pedophile police. Relationship between Bob Sisterly and Nick Flanagan. Sammy's relationship to Network X. Sammy, the 12-year-old girl, was the main victim of the sexual abuse being perpetrated against children in the town. She referred to the offender, a man in his 60s, as her boyfriend, and her close friends knew of the sexual activities between her and the man. The offender also happened to be the best friend of her father. I was asked to provide support to Sammy and in one session it became apparent that Sammy's personality had been totally fragmented. In her words, she was like a house with mirrors everywhere, smashed into broken bits. It was later that I learned about the Illuminati use of trauma-based mind control, sexual abuse and satanic ritual to force children to create altered personalities. Other information from Sammy has led me to believe that she had been subjected to all these forms of abuse. There's also a condition called Dissociative Identity Disorder, yeah, which can arise from severe uh, childhood abuse. Yeah. It's got nothing to do with the Illuminati. Yeah. Okay. All right. Sammy also told me that her relatives take her to Queensland whenever I want and that she can get whatever I want to. It was only later that I learned of the immense significance of what Sammy was telling me. Sammy's relative is a board member of Network X, who is based in Queensland. It's my belief that Sammy was being used in Network X's production of child pornography, both in Victoria and Queensland. Here is another example of the police's failure to investigate a case with ominous connections to Network X. In particular, the police unit that has been established specifically and exclusively to investigate such cases well and truly ensured that this case would go nowhere. After two sessions with Sammy, I was told that the school had received complaints that I had brainwashed the children and the support sessions were terminated. More connections to the Illuminati, the satanic cult, mixed experiences. I guess that's a new person. Bob Sicily's religion. Telephone interference and intimidation begins. It was after reporting the events at um, the country town to Bob Sicily that unusual events began to occur. My phone line became clicking and the voicemail service recorded the sounds of a tape clicking over. Note, voicemail does not use tapes for recording, so the tape was from another source. 
Two of my organization staff members had their cars broken into on the same night. In one car, the book The Clocks by Agatha Christie was on the front seat. The book is the story of a series of murders where the only evidence left at each murder scene is a clock. On the front seat of the other staff member's car was a broken clock. Nothing was stolen from either car. On one occasion, I purposely said over the phone that I kept all of my files in the backyard shed. This was not true, but I wanted to test the security of the telephone line soon after the back shed was broken into. Ha ha! Board members propose a name change. At one board member, Harry Napkin, the head of the Agricultural Society, proposed to launch the organization, despite the fact that it had been operating for nearly two years. He had three ideas. The first was that a rodeo would be organized and whenever a rider fell from their horse or bull, money would be donated. Thus, it would be money for every bruised butt. Uh. The second proposal was to organize a beauty pageant for 12-year-old girls. Uh. There would be an award given for the prettiest girl on the shiniest pony. A photo of her on her horse would be used as the center page spread in the leading newspaper, courtesy of the editor-in-chief contact. The third proposal was to have a photo of sexually abused children in an animal birthing center. This photo would also be published in the leading newspaper. Harry Napkin also proposed a name change. He proposed to change the name of the organization to Shine. I did not want to do this and the members of the board put me under incredible pressure to adopt the name change. It was only later that I learned about the Illuminati connections and the significance of their symbolism and language. Shine is a very significant Illuminati term. Okay... More stuff about significance of shine. Escape from Bob Sisterly on the pedophile board. Mother receives death threat from Bob Sisterly. Report to Department of Education Complaints and Investigation Unit. After these experiences, I made a complaint to the Complaints and Investigations Unit of the Department of Education. My complaint related to the conduct of teacher Dick Newman, which amounted to repeated acts of misconduct against students and the police investigation in the country town. Something about leaked documents. It really goes on. This is tough going. For a while, yeah. It just goes on and on, and then it talks about, you know, reports to the deputy ombudsman, threat, uh, theft of evidence, fires at the Network X studio, Melbourne GPO and celebrities' home, children tortured or die in mysterious circumstances, fears for my life, meeting with the chief commissioner of police. Ethical Standards Department investigation gets off to a questionable start. Deputy Ombudsman gets the investigation. Childcare Centre, Pedophile Network, Police, Pedophiles and Network X. So the courts found this document unsubstantiated? No, the courts found it to be religious vilification. Religious vilification. But that's through VCAT and it's an action that was brought under religious vilification laws. So I'm not sure whether or not there were defences under that legislative scheme relating to truth or, or anything like that. It's mm. it's not a defamation proceeding that was being brought. Hmm. Um, Do we know if because of the published document there was ever any action in these cases? So. And the proliferation of it obviously across the internet. So, in this document with lots of references slash further reading, mm. as at February 2008, there's, like, a Wikipedia article about the Racial and Religious Tolerance Act, a critical review of that Tolerance Act by something called saltshakers.org.au, an opinion piece, piece um, from The Age, um, news articles detailing the court case against Dr. Mickelson, Michelson, that's the person who wrote the document? Yeah. yeah. OTO documents pertaining to the case 
on like otoaustralia.org.au article about the case against publishers by the defendants conspiracyplanet.com <laughs> newspaper articles describing Dr. Michelson's dealings with the authority so like articles on the age so 2005 New Doubts on Police Corruption Watchdog. This is an article on The Age. It's still online. Okay. It says this was published 15 years ago. Taped conversations reveal high-level concerns about whether Victoria's anti-police corruption unit can work. A senior investigator with Victoria's new police corruption watchdog has expressed doubts about the officer's ability to carry out its role. The investigator in taped conversations heard by The Age said the decision by the BRAC's government to set up the Office of Police Integrity was an attempt to have something that looks more like a crime commission. When asked whether the new body could investigate organised crime and police protection of organised crime, the investigator replied, no, it can't. The investigator said the Office of Police Integrity could possibly investigate allegations of corrupt police officers, but only after its coercive powers had been tried and tested in court. The comments appear sharply at odds with the government's repeated claims that the Office of Police Integrity would be as effective and powerful as a Royal Commission or an independent crime commission in tackling police corruption. The senior investigator, who is heading an inquiry into the handling of sexual assault allegations by police and other agencies, made the comments during a two-hour interview in November with a child psychologist. The psychologist had made a series of complaints about alleged police mishandling of child sexual abuse investigations. The investigator also said on tape that the appointment of George Brower to the roles of both Police Integrity Director and Victorian Ombudsman had created a conceptual problem. Resources were limited and choices had to be made about what complaints against police were investigated. A conceptual problem? I think that they're saying that, structurally speaking, those two roles should be separate. Right. Okay, yeah. Yeah, that's, that's my impression from that. Okay. Resources were limited and choices had to be made about what complaints against police were investigated. The officer's ability to investigate allegations of previous police corruption was limited by its lack of jurisdiction over officers who had left the force. Okay. The police were still relying on Victoria Police to draw up briefs of evidence and mount prosecutions. (laughs) The comments were made on November 17, the day after the old office of the police ombudsman was given extra powers and renamed the Office of Police Integrity. The new doubts about the watchdog's ability to fight police corruption follow revelations two weeks ago that Victoria police detectives seconded to the office had raised concerns about its effectiveness, including the lack of powers to tap telephones. That prompted Federal Attorney General Philip Roddick to renew his call for Victoria to establish an independent anti-corruption body like those in other states. Copies of the tape containing the senior investigator's comments were provided to the age by the complainant, Dr. Raina Michelson, who has lodged 10 specific complaints about alleged police mishandling of investigations into child sexual abuse, including claims police had helped cover up an organized pedophile ring. At one point on the tape, Dr. Michelson describes that what she is being told is bizarre. Dr. Michelson told the age that she was astounded at the admissions made about the Office of Police Integrity and its reluctance to investigate her specific complaints. During the interview, attempts were made to persuade her to drop her complaints against specific police officers and have her general concerns incorporated into the inquiry into the handling of sexual assault complaints. Dr. Michelson declined. Last week, the Office of Police Integrity told Dr. Michelson, who heads the Child Sexual Abuse Prevention Program and Brave Hearts Victoria, that it investigated her complaints and would take no further action. 
Deputy Ombudsman John Taylor told The Age that the interview with Dr. Michelson had taken place the day after legislation creating the Office of Police Integrity was passed. The only area where our officer was inaccurate was their comment that the OPI couldn't investigate ex-police officers. This is incorrect as OPI has substantial powers to investigate both former and serving police officers, bearing in mind OPI's charter, which is to investigate police corruption or serious misconduct, Mr. Taylor said. Blah, blah, blah. Earlier comments by Dr. Michelson of police mishandling of child sexual abuse cases led to a damning report by the police ombudsman last year. The report found four cases had been bungled and was highly critical of two senior detectives. Dr. Michelson is expected to reveal further details of her allegations of police corruption and cover-up of organised pedophilia during a joint media conference today with Queensland anti-child sexual abuse campaigner Hetty Johnston and the head of parents Victoria Gail McHardy. So... There's also articles, uh, there's a subheading here, newspaper articles detailing claims made against prominent TV personality. This is from 2004. Victim says police help defender. This is published on The Age as well. Simon is angry and frustrated. He also wants to know why he has been left feeling like a victim all over again after telling Victoria Police how he had been sexually assaulted and raped as a teenager by a prominent television industry figure. The past seven months have seen his trust in the police and his belief in the criminal justice system shattered. And he has been left wondering why law enforcement and legal systems are weighted so heavily in favours of offenders and against victims. Simon's journey began in March when he walked into a large suburban police station in Melbourne to make a statement detailing how the prominent television executive, who has close links to some of the biggest names in Australian show business, had preyed on him. According to his police statement, the attacks began in the early 1980s when Simon left home as a 17-year-old and began work at the television station. For more than a year, the assaults continued. The statement, seen by The Age, lists at least five attacks, including in the television station's boardroom, a studio dressing room, and the executive's car. On another occasion, the victim said a second offender who also worked at the television station sexually assaulted him while the executive watched. Simon left the station, but he did not escape. The prominent television executive raped Simon one final time in his car. As a naive 17-year-old, he says he was powerless to prevent the attacks from such an influential and powerful figure, was vulnerable to manipulation because he was away from his family and friends and was afraid of losing his job. Simon, who is not gay, says he was not the only victim. In his statement, he named four other likely victims, one of whom he said was willing to give evidence. For the next 20 years, Simon tried to get on with his life. But he finally sought professional counselling for the lingering emotional scars and after confronting what had happened, decided to go to the police. Initially, the investigation appeared to progress well, although he was puzzled when told it would be carried out not by the officers to whom he had made his statement, but by police in the area where the first attacks took place. Simon was praised as being a credible witness and assured he had a strong case, although it was clear he said that the country police were nervous about investigating such a wealthy, powerful and high-profile figure. The prominent executive was interviewed by police but refused to answer questions or make any comment. In early September, Simon attended a meeting at the Office of Public Prosecutions where the progress of the case was reviewed. Simon says the OPP gave the green light for the investigation to continue and for the laying of charges. A few weeks later, police asked him to write a letter effectively exonerating the second offender who had allegedly assaulted him while a te television executive watched. They said it might encourage the second offender who had made a statement saying he had witnessed one of the assaults to testify against the executive. Simon has told the ombudsman he wrote the letter under duress from police and that it appeared to be an attempt to protect the second offender, still a well-known identity. 
Four weeks after the meeting at the OPP's office and a week after writing the letter, the investigating police suddenly telephoned him to say the case was being dropped. Simon says the investigation was badly handled with poor communications, a lack of resources, and officers acting in a patronising and vexatious manner. Simon now proudly describes himself as a victim-slash-survivor and says he lodged a complaint with the ombudsman and spoke to the age in the hope of improving the justice system for further victims. His complaint is now expected to form part of a special ombudsman's inquiry into the way Victoria Police and government departments handle sexual assault allegations. There's another one from The Age, 2004 as well. TV man linked to sex case inquiry. A sudden decision by Victoria Police to drop a rape investigation involving a prominent television industry figure is likely to be examined as part of a special inquiry by the state ombudsman into how authorities handle sexual assault cases. Using his new powers, the ombudsman will investigate how government agencies and police investigate allegations of sexual assault and how victims are treated, blah, blah, blah. The alleged victim of the television figure lodged a formal complaint last week with the Ombudsman and Victoria Police Chief Commissioner Christine Nixon about the decision to drop the investigation. The Ombudsman had already decided to hold the special inquiry before the complaint was received. The Ombudsman has been told that police decided to drop the case despite the Office of Public Prosecutions reviewing the evidence just weeks earlier and indicating the investigation should proceed and charges should be laid. In his complaint to the Ombudsman, the alleged victim said that police ignored potential corroborative evidence Failed to interview witnesses, only spoke to some witnesses over the phone and pressured him into writing a letter exonerating a second offender just a week before dropping the case. The new inquiry comes after an ombudsman's investigation into police mishandling of child sexual abuse cases was scathing in its criticism of Victorian police in July. Police reopened four cases after the ombudsman found investigations had been bungled. The age revealed at the time that in one of the cases, children had remained at risk in a country town after police inadequately investigated an alleged pedophile in 1999. The two-year investigation by the Ombudsman was also highly critical of the attitudes of investigating officers. One senior sexual crime squad detective blamed a 12-year-old schoolgirl for leading on a 63-year-old man who allegedly abused her. Another police officer told investigators the same girl was a slut despite admitting she had most likely been sexually abused. The sexual crime squad was also found to have failed to investigate allegations against a teacher but told the education department that investigations had been carried out and the teacher cleared. I think the thrust of what the writer is trying to set up is like trying to give you as much independent corroboration of some of the stuff that's set out in the document as possible. Right. Yep. To lead you to the conclusion that there's a possibility that some of the stuff that she's talking about is correct. Yeah. Okay. I don't think the Illuminati stuff has to be true for it to no. be worrisome. I don't. Yeah. And I think absolutely. That, that might be the point. The, that all that Illuminati stuff doesn't have to be true for the um sexual assault and rape allegations to be true like i guess there isn't a great deal of commentary on how that all links into the oto stuff yeah is it just that that the oto did a media release about the vcat decision okay it's gone (laughs) so there had to have been more about the oto in her documents for it to then be religious defamation or whatever the thing is called right what more was there about the OTO in it? I gotta look. Because I think at some point I was just like, who cares about the Illuminati angle? It's not really necessarily yeah. the troublesome part. Yeah. What do they say? She gets out from under that board. She gets out from under that board. Then. 
keeps on sort of pushing the barrow. Visits from the Mormons. One day my mother and I came out from my parents' house and there was a group of men waiting in a, house, in a car out the front of the house again. They sped off when we came out, but this time I got in my car and followed them. As I drove toward them, they had, their, they had turned their car around and were facing me. They flashed their lights at me. I drove around the cul-de-sac and was shocked when I got to my parents' house again. The men were talking to my mother from in their car. I called for her to get away from the men and she replied, It's okay, dear. They're Mormons. I did not believe they were Mormons. <laughs> and I held my hand on the car horn and chased them out of the street. A license check on their car, however, seemed to indicate they really were Mormons or were using a Mormon registered car. I did not think they would ever return, especially if they really were Mormons. However, two weeks later, I was getting into my car and saying goodbye to my mother. The same men approached my mother, not realizing I was in the car. They asked if they could ask her a few questions about me. I then stuck my head out of the car window and said, if you've got any questions, you can ask me. They were very surprised that I was there and asked, why did you chase us out of the street the other day? We're just Mormons. I replied, because some of your behavior is most un-Mormon-like. The man said, like what? And I replied, like flashing your lights at me. He then said, oh, you mean when we were taking photos of you? You didn't like us taking photos of you? What? I told them to stay away from me and my family. Soon after this, I saw the same men in a different car. It was a dark, flashy sedan, similar to those that were often sitting in our street. I got the license plate of this car and gave it to a trusted police officer. He told me that the car was owned by a debt collecting agency, or more likely a surveillance company, as they often use debt collecting as a front. The owner of the car, however, was not one of the men who had been seen in the car and was a Mormon. The Mormons were very clearly conducting surveillance on my family and I. I can say I did go to a job interview at a um, private investigations firm when I was quite young. Yeah. <laughs> like a young adult. And um, it was mostly like debt collection contracts that I, they seemed to be dealing with. Yeah. And it sort of seemed like maybe they were using the like the sort of stuff that you get to do when you're a private investigator to locate people to recover yeah, debts. Yeah, they do. So I can, I can um, sort of see that there's an overlap. I have a friend who used to be partnered to a person who did debt collection work. And, like, they've, they're sort of pushed to do really sort of sneaky stuff mm. because that's what their job is, to kind of track people down in a way, in a very specific way. But they'll do stuff like call somebody's neighbour and get the neighbour to, like, confirm yeah. that the person is home yeah. and be like, you know, we're just trying to drop this off when they're around so it doesn't get stolen or whatever so that they can confirm that the person is home and then they call them and or whatever. Like, th- they use other contacts. They, they they have to – that, and they can be very sneaky like that. So there's one bit here that says Child Care Centre Pedophile Network Police Pedophiles and Network X. Ian Softman informed me briefly about a case in the early 1990s. I did my own research into this case and discovered that it involved a creche in the Mornington Peninsula region. A high-profile group of men were sexually abusing, torturing, and hypnotizing the children. The owner and his wife took the children out of the center during the day to the homes of the rich and powerful where the children would be sexually abused, tortured, and filmed. The children were also subjected to satanic ritual abuse. This case was almost identical to those in the U.S., Little Rascals, McMartin, and others. The offenders were wealthy and powerful men in the community and included police officers. Video copies of the children being abused were obtained by Network X. How interesting it is that Network X should be involved. 
However, then the story went public. The video tapes went, tapes went missing and the police claimed they never received them. Ultimately, the police did not take any action against the owners of the crash on the grounds that the children were too young to be viewed as credible witnesses. While there was conclusive evidence that four of the children had been raped or sexually abused, while at the daycare center, the owner was never charged. A concerned parent with links to the underworld offered the head of a bikey group $10,000 to inflict enough damage so as to ensure that the owner of the crash would never sexually abuse another child again. The head Ooh. of the bikey group said that they knew about the owner of the crash and what he was up to. However, they could not do the job. Much as they would like to, the owner had protection from the very highest levels. He was untouchable. When the Mornington Peninsula Child Care Centre case broke, an investigative journalist infiltrated an elite child pornography and pedophile club based in Melbourne. Its members were all wealthy and elite members of Melbourne society. It was chaired by the CEO of a major Melbourne charitable trust. This article included information on the use of telephone monitoring, courtesy of the group's contacts with telecom. The children from the Mornington Peninsula Child Care Centre reported being taken to a pink room with a spa and other significant decor. It was in a house where the children were sexually abused, tortured and filmed, amongst other locations. Three children independently identified the house that they'd been taken to, to the investigators. Sure enough, the room had been painted a dusty pink colour, it had a spa and other decor items described by the children. However, as you now know, no further action was taken against the owner of the childcare centre, nor others suspected of being involved in the ring. What is most significant, however, is that the pink house was registered to the Victorian police. I'm now working with some of the young survivors at the childcare centre and their families. It's clear that a cover-up of the highest order occurred in 1992 and the children and their families are still suffering from it. Hmm. Like, the thing for me is, like, this broader thing about the internet and the sharing of information and the kind of nasty shit that actually happens... And then the conspiracy theory stuff that makes you go, whatever. Mm. And it's like horrible and incredible, I think, in the... They have a Wikipedia page. Yeah, no doubt. Order Templus Orientis, Order of the Temple of the East. Or Order of Oriental Templars. Like, the material seems to have so little to do with them. Yeah. I don't understand how they could make a claim on it being, like, uh, saying bad things about them when they're barely in it. Yeah, and the idea that that results in the entirety of the document being taken down when there Mm. would probably be the option of just, like, taking down parts... Uh, looking at the OTO yeah. Wikipedia page. Originally, it was intended to be modelled after and associated with European Freemasonry, such as the Masonic Templar organisations. But under the leadership of Alistair Crowley, oh, OTO was reorganised around Crowley's Thelema as its central and religious principle. So this is Crowley-related. One of the features and core teaching of the organisation is its practice of sex magic. Similar to secret societies, OTO membership is based on an initiatory system with a series of degree ceremonies that use ritual drama. According to Crowley, OTO members should rarely come into contact with one another. Even after affiliation, you would not meet anyone unless it was necessary for you to work in cooperation with them. I am afraid you will have 
still got the idea that the great work is a tea party. What? I am afraid you will have still got the idea that the great work is a tea party. Contact with other students only means that you criticise their hats and then their morals, and I am not going to encourage this. Your work is not anybody else's, and undirected chatter is the worst poisonous element in a humane society. Alistair Crowley was a uh, occultist, magician, poet, painter, novelist, and mountaineer. He founded the religion of Thelema, identifying himself as the prophet entrusted with guiding humanity into the Aeon of Horus in the early 20th century. Okay, I've been mixing up Alistair Crowley and Anton LaVey this whole time. (laughs) (laughs) Crowley died in 1947. Whenever you see stuff about occult stuff in, like, storytelling and Hellboy and whatever. There's always some connection to Alistair Crowley, the occultist. Okay. Yeah, I think I've maybe seen stuff like that. Who is the big bad? Look at his creepy eyeballs. Crowley. <laughs> There's something internet-y for, like, I don't know if it's just that I spent too long hanging out in weird, spooky bits of the internet mm. that aren't necessarily like all conspiracy theory related. I'm not sure no. that I spent a lot of time on that stuff, but I think I don't spend a lot of time delving into that stuff anymore because it ends up leaving you with the sense that there's horrible things happening in the world that you can't do anything about that yeah. are highly organized and that hurt people all the time. And I think that in many respects that stuff could be true. Mm is true there's lots of evidence that it's true like if you just go to the jeffrey epstein thing if we just keep on coming back to that as a touchstone yeah for the idea that there is highly organized horrible stuff that victimizes people um but then there does also seem to be this thing where people are excited by and fetishizing the idea of that happening in the world yeah and so how do you sift through the complexity of the world and all of the complexity of the information that exists in the world as an individual person. And so how do you figure also, out if any of that is true or what parts of that is true? There's also a temptation to look at these vast uh, underground networks of very powerful people with a lot of money and be, a- and be able to go, well, there's so little I could do about this. I'll try and do these things. And then not focus on things you can actually do in your everyday life to help other human beings. Yeah. Like, so you focus on these theoretical child trafficking networks yeah. that, um, and focus on them online and and try and do all this, this stuff for theoretical people and theoretical situations that you've just heard these horror stories about, but not actually doing anything for the homeless children in your neighbourhood, not actually doing anything for the Uber drivers who are being paid no money and who are ending up homeless, like not actually helping people, not actually doing concrete things because of these vast kind of exciting underground powerful people doing naughty things stories. I wonder if it's a way for people to restructure their understanding of the world in a way that makes them feel safer. So, you know, like Like, there's nothing I can do. It's beyond my power. Well, I'm thinking about this. uh, Yeah, absolutely. The idea that I think the reality is that the enemy is within. You know, like people are far more likely. It's not Uncle Joe. Yeah. It's a one percenter. Yeah. You know, if you construct the monster in the woods Mm. instead of like within the home, then that 
can sometimes be like kind of titillating the idea of the monster in the woods. Um, but actually like the horrible stuff, you know, like I used to work in the valley and I would park in the valley and I would walk to my car park and I would work late all the time because I keep the hours of a fucking teenager. <laughs> um, and sometimes people would say, you know, aren't you afraid of, you know, walking through the valley and chilling out in the car park? Um, and I never was because the reality is that I'm far more likely to be victimized within my own home by Someone a person who's known know. to me. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And it's like if there's any danger to your children, it's not going to be Ernie Old from Network X. It's mm-hmm. going to be Uncle Joe. Yeah. And those are really, I think, challenging and horrific realities to face in a meaningful way. And so I think that it's comforting to construct the monster in the woods. Yeah. But also, maybe the monster's out in the fucking woods too. I don't fucking know. It's probably a little bit of both. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so now it's time for something more lighthearted. We're going to do a bracket battle, and we have a very special guest from another podcast who is joining us. We recorded this separately because we had to be out and about in the field. We are tasting barn mees around (laughs) Brisbane, and we are reviewing them and rating them and ranking them with the help of Zach from Cruel and Unusual Nourishment. And we're going to get into that now. Hacklock here in post. Just wanted to apologize for the sound quality of the upcoming segment. It's still really good. It just sounds a bit weird. We were recording on separate devices and I had a lot of trouble getting this sounding good. Sorry about that. So we decided to do something different for Brack Battle today. And our plan to record in the field failed terribly uh, because we had no batteries, but, you know, whatever. (laughs) So here is Zach. Hello. Hi, it's me. I'm Zach. (laughs) Zach, tell me, what's the name of your podcast? Yeah. Hey, uh, I uh, have a food podcast that I run with a friend, Adam Flannery. It's called Cruel and Unusual Nourishment. Uh, Two guys finding Melbourne's best food in the most unlikely of places, which I've gotten really good at saying over the past year. So, yeah, everything else is downhill from here, though. But, yeah, we just kind of, like, check out, try to find hidden gems in Melbourne. Oh, beautiful. Yeah, which was uh, very hard during lockdown. But, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But outside of that, we, we've done some. And uh, Heather's been on an episode as well. Yeah. Which was really great. We went to Taco Bills. We did. Not a, not a hidden gem. No, not no. at all. It was like Montezuma's. Very much like but Montezuma. Like, oh, way more wow. alcoholic and more fun hats. Yes. Yes. We got a hat. Yeah. I just want to be clear that I've gotten really fucked up at Montezuma's before. Then we, we should definitely definitely take Brunny to Taco Bill's. <laughs> I, like it's the it's the best place for like uh, f- getting a lot of food in your stomach for cheap before you go out on on, on a big night. Yeah. Oh, Perfect actually, pre gaming kind of. That's yeah. a vibe I can really yeah. get into. Yeah. You get your big frozen margarita that you can all drink from. Oh, shared and which is would be great in COVID times. Yeah, and um, <laughs> and then lay down the uh, food base before you hit all the clubs. Okay, amazing. It I sounds think, responsible, even. It was. I think we were the only table there not doing that. Yeah, yeah. everyone was really dressed up. Yeah, that was weird too. Oh. <laughs> we were just dressed like-, like they were wearing their fancy clubbing dresses mm. and stuff. So on that background, yeah. with this, you know, special <laughs> yeah. expertise that you have, mm. it seemed the right thing to do for mm. you to come on this uh, this field trip with us to eat uh, a billion banh mi's to do so good. Brisbane's best banh mi bracket battle. 
I yeah I I you know secretly was wondering if Kevin would invite me on, so I was really I was like yeah yes. <laughs> She fucking did it. Like, and then was like, yeah, cool. I guess I could come for a, for a drive. But also, like, the barn me thing, I was like, this is totally something that really excites this me. This is so. your wheelhouse. Yeah, my wheelhouse. I love my wheelhouse. When you <laughs> said that you were eating breakfast, I got mad. Yeah, I. Well, Henry, uh, shout out to my good friend Henry, who was making me a delicious breakfast because he sold some mirrors yesterday on Facebook Marketplace, which he traded for like eggs that a woman's chickens chickens laid. I, I was like, I could eat these eggs. Yeah. Uh, and he made really good eggs. But I didn't eat the bun that the eggs came on because I knew I'd be eating a lot of bread. So okay. I just ate the eggs and it was only a small amount. Beautiful. Um, All right, I'll allow that. Okay, thank you. Good eggs too. <laughs> so reviewing a lot of food too. <laughs> were the eggs, uh, those blue eggs you can get from chickens? No, they were tan eggs. They were just regular eggs. They were reg eggs. Okay, that's good. Reg eggs. Eggs on the reg. <laughs> egg on the reg. So today we went to three different establishments and a four different bun meats. Yes. Um, and so, of course, as previously mentioned, the beginning of the journey was marred by not being able to record anything in my car in Dara. Yeah. Um, but also we had gone to Dara to try and go to Scotts Road Takeaway, which has a fabled, amazing bun me. Yes, I was um, doing some research and found all these people talking about this this amazing bun me place out at Dara. It just looks a little dingy takeaway mm. place and they only do one type of bun me, but it's supposed to be incredible. That does sound cool. Yeah. Yeah. And straight up, I trust Dara to make a good bun me. Mm. Yeah. No doubt. Okay. So we did that. We had the Dara. <laughs> just, to, just to do like a pre-cap, we mm. did the Dara bun me. But we didn't go to the Scots Road takeaway. No. we Because it was close. It was just Dara takeaway. <laughs> so we went to a place just called Dara takeaway, which was very close to Scots Road takeaway and obviously have to compete. So they were, yeah. like, really close together geographically. Yeah. Ooh. And there was a second one as well that did find me. Oh, yeah, true. Yeah. Oh, yeah, it was closed. Yeah, no, I'm sorry. Because to me, <laughs> they were all so close together that it all felt kind of like a bit of, like, the same thing. There was three. Yeah. And one was closed and one looked half closed and then there was the one that was open that we went to. Yeah, because there's, like, I'm, there, yeah, cause there's like a bakery adjoining to one uh, that don't really serve. They just kind of open everything up while they bake. Uh, yeah, so I just, everything's kind of, it's a weird setup there. I find. Um, yeah. And then we went to Cafe Omai. Yep. Uh, and we got two bun me there. Yes. Um, crackling cork. And that's and in Annalee, yeah? That's in Annalee, yes. yes. Um, and then the third place we went to was Mrs. Lou's at South Bank, mm. where we just got the plain pork. And that was in a food court. Yes. Yeah. I don't know why I feel like that's worth pointing out, but I kind of really Mrs. do. Mrs. Lou's is like a bit of a chain, so yeah. there's a couple of different locations, like this one next to my work. Mm. Um, there's one in Milton. Yeah. Oh, there's a few. Yeah, there's Ooh. a few around. This is not confirmed on my end, but I heard that Mrs. Lou's was set up by the people who used to own Trang before they sold Trang on. Oh. Which in my mind imbues Mrs. Lou's with the magic of Trang. What's Trang? Uh, well, if and look, I'll forgive you because you haven't lived in Brisbane for a number of years. Thank you but, very much. Um, you know, some people say that Brisbane is divided into Northsiders and Southsiders, but from my perspective, yeah. Brisbane is divided into people who go to Trang and people who go to Kwantan. Wow, huge. <laughs> Pro scub and anti scub. <laughs> no, tra- uh, okay, and, great. And, and I, but you're Trang. Uh, well, I'll go to Kwantan, okay. but I'm I'm like Trang from way back. Yeah, yeah, Trang OG. Whereas I feel like Trang has dropped off and I am all about Kwantan. But the, the mythos is that Trang got less good after Trang got sold. Yeah. And so now mm. the goodness of Trang is in Mrs. Lou's. Right. Wow. They're carrying the legacy. Yeah. The Trang torch. Yes. Mm. Well, that's how like I the, feel about it. The Trang extended cinematic universe. Yeah. Culinary yes. universe, sorry. 
And, and the TCU. Yeah, the TCU. Yeah. I mean, also, of course, the TCU. There's, there's like the there's like the new in mythos of um, Cafe Omai as well. Mm. You know, we were handed our bun me by the lovely Maggie Nguyen. Yeah, yeah, cool purple hair, amazing hair. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you particularly uh, feel an affinity for there because she remembered your name. Oh well, <laughs> that's, that's huge. There's though. a couple that's of things huge. here that I used to live in Annalee. And at, at different times in my life and in lots of different houses. And so for me, Cafe Omai is like a quintessential part of the Annalie experience. And also I was saying that anybody who's a bit like poker faced broadly or anybody who even leans toward grumpiness at all, like if I can acquire their love, <laughs> oh my God. Yeah. So, you know. It, 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 it hits so good. That that Margaret yeah. Nguyen calls me by name. That's I'm that, like, that's... <gasps> That's very cool. You've been chosen. You've been one of the, cho- one of the chosen few. I love that. Uh, and I, I might have told you, I might have told Hacklock, but I wouldn't sure. have told Zach that one time somebody went there to get coffee for me on the way to my house. Right. And Maggie served them and said, is this for Bri? That's, that's wild. <laughs> that's so cool. That's what you want. Like that's, those are the gems, baby. Yeah. That's yeah. like a neighborhood familiarity Oof. that just yeah. feels... So like yeah. home, yeah. yeah, stuff like that happens, and you go, "Well, I'm not going to kill myself today." <laughs> <laughs> not today. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so when we went to Dara, Dara, we got just their plain pork. Yeah, there was the option of chicken or pork. What was the price? It was five dollars. Yes, yeah, it was five dollars. Five dollar dues, cash yeah. only. Mm. And I requested that the bummy be cut into three pieces, mm. and Uncle very decisively said no can't do it it'll fall apart there's no way that could happen you can't do it there's no way something can be cut twice and he- only once but he, look i actually like he that he justified it, it. Yeah, yeah yeah and, and look i I, cool. I i couldn't argue i yeah. wasn't gonna push back no. he's a professional bound mia absolutely I, think I need to respect his expertise at five dollars time is money like you know he needs to be <laughs> those things need to be moving you know at five dollars which is awesome, by the way. That's so good. I also mm. want to note that the place at Dara did stock Pasito, which is what we had to drink with our barn meat. I had a also really amazing great. time drinking that Pasito. I haven't had Pasito in a while. Mm. Extra points for the Pasito, I think. Yeah. The thing that really struck me about the barn meat from Dara was that it was just a really good looking boy. Yeah. The cross yeah. section of that sandwich. That was a good looking sandwich. It yeah. did. Had a really good cross section. And you know you're in for a good time when you look at the cross section of the sandwich and you can see the mayo ooze out. Yeah. I've never, well, I'd never seen that before and you were talking a lot about it and in my mind you know uh i'm like i i do a food club podcast but i don't really know that much about food but like mayo is not an ingredient that ever goes on a barn me i didn't know that was a thing ah. yeah so that that kind of took me by surprise i think it, you, you know i think I, if i could propose <laughs> that the red rooster rooster roll is the bun meat of white people. Oh, okay. <laughs> then, then the stuffing is the pate. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Great. Yeah. Okay, great. Of, of course. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> this has got some big Pepe Sylvia kind of like energy. I don't know. This is great. So I think that like the mayo doesn't necessarily always stand alone on a bun meat because it's there in a complicated marriage with the pate. Hell yeah. yeah. Cool. 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 I feel like some are a lot more buttery than mayonnaisey as well mm. like some will have more yeah. butter sometimes you see sorry the like uh the mountain of margarine with the butter knife stuck in it at the counter and i'm always like a little bit scared of that i can remember going to a barmy place in newtown and um 
it might have been the only time I've been at a place where all of the like the bane was full of all the cambros with the ingredients for them to make the banh mi while you were watching. Yeah. And I was really impressed to see the cambro full of the pate that they'd obviously made themselves in house with the butter seal over the top oh, that oh, cracked yes. by the, the spreading knife. Because uh, that's a traditional way of doing it. Well, I went to a really strange gym for a hot second that had a lot of strange views about what you should eat and when and shit like that. And one of the things that they were into was regularly eating liver, which is probably good for you. Yeah. And so one of the easiest ways for me to eat liver on the regular was for me to make my own pate. They were saying do it so you don't have preservatives and stuff. Yeah. So Hmm. you want to seal the top of the um, pate so that it doesn't get maybe like oxidized or so it doesn't react with the oxygen. Yeah, yeah, cool. So you can do that with um, some kind of one time I did it with like a little port wine jelly, kind of a brandy jelly oh, or something. Wow. Or you can just seal it with butter. Mm. Well, I didn't know about that. That's really cool. How did you feel about it, Heather? Uh, I thought it was delicious. Oh, God, it was really good. The bread was really crusty but very soft inside, mm. uh, which I'm always a big fan of because I feel like sometimes you get like a real crusty thing and you bite into it and it just feels stale. Mm. I don't like crusty. It hurts my mouth. Yeah, it You're hurts like my mouth the bread. a bit I've got well. a princess mouth. <laughs> um and I could really taste the pate in the darawan, which I really enjoy because I mm. to me the pate is a big factor in how much I enjoy the banh mi. Mm. I feel like with the the main thing you really liked um, was the, the 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 meat was it a meatball? Was... Oh, there's a pork ball. There, you there go. was a pork yeah, ball yeah. in there. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah, and I love those um, yeah. because I'm the worst pescatarian that ever happened. <laughs> <laughs> um, the other thing I liked was. Um, I quite enjoyed that the pork that they were using mm. just really, it gave me like roast at grandma's vibes. Mm. Mm. <laughs> Cold cuts. Mm. Yeah, it was shaped quite thinly. Mm. It was re- the Overall, it was really rich, really rich flavor, the whole everything. And every time you got a bite, because it wasn't too huge, you kind of, you're getting everything. Everybody was talking about how the chili wasn't too far forward yeah. in the situation. All right. Intense. So that's how we felt about the Daryl one. So then next we went to Annalie and we got two different types of pork. Mm. We got crackling, yeah. crackling pork for 11 bucko mm. and um, the barbecue pork for seven fifty. There's also a classic pork option, but I find that when I was still eating meat on the reg, mm. I really liked the barbecue pork mm. and people seem to lose their shit over the crackling pork and it sells out constantly. Mm. So I thought it would be a good idea to go with that as well. Mm. So how did you feel about the barbecue pork one? Oh, barbecue pork really liked it. Could mm. really, uh, like all of the five spice was coming through. Mm. Um, I quite liked the Polaroid that Zach took of me eating the bar <laughs> me with my eyes closed. <laughs> <laughs> that, that was fun. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's the spicy flavor of the meat was much more prominent in that mm. one. I re- said that it was a bit spicier. I said that the bread inside the crusty shell was not quite as soft. Mm-hmm. Um, which I mean that doesn't really matter that much but yeah. I noticed it and pate was really nice and the meat was a bit more interestingly flavoured more spices it was more it was spicier and then the chilli but the chilli was like doing that thing where it's just like right in the front of what you're tasting and it's really like intent Over- overpowering thank you yeah uh, which I, I don't think I'm that much of a huge fan of. That could totally be someone's jam, but like mm. it's like kebabs where sometimes there'll be just this vein of one of the ingredients down the entire one side. Whenever you bite into that, it just clean. It's it's just the only thing you're tasting. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you felt like it was overpowering in that one. Oh, at points throughout, but like um, if I had to give any feedback about that place, it just took too long to like. It was just really busy, and so we had to wait longer, yeah. and it cost a little bit more. Um, I feel like part part of the bun part of bun me I guess you kind of are waiting in really long lines. One of the best places in Melbourne 
This place uh, on Smith Street is really good in Collingwood. Did you want to look it up? No, absolutely not. Um, But, like, uh, they've always got a really big line, and you luck out, and sometimes you can sneak in really quickly. But they're always, like, super cheap. I don't know. I really like that kind of, like, the quickness, I feel like, is a bit of a factor. Yeah. Um, And we had to wait ages. Yeah, we did have to wait quite a while. But it was very busy, and it's just after Christmas. You're right. You're absolutely right. I think also, like, the... the, connection that I feel to the place in terms of community mm. always makes me feel really tolerant about waiting a little while to yeah, get my cool. stuff from there because mm. I'm really happy for them every mm. time they're busy because it makes me think that they're going all right, especially across it. like pandemic stuff. Yeah, true. Yeah. Well, um, I've been to Cafe Omai before and I really like all the food there. Uh, upon Heather's recommendation, actually. Ah, so, yeah. I know some food things. Mm, but that place is really good. I really like it. I didn't get a bun me last time. I think I had like a breakfast... Some sort of breakfast. Re- having reviewed, having uh, conducted further perusal of our leftovers from Cafe Omai, <laughs> um, quietly nibbling them in the back here. I was really happy with the bread that we got today. Mm. I find that when you are getting bun me, you know, people are making the rolls themselves and so there can be an amount of variability mm. of what the rolls are like day to day, presumably based on how well everybody slept and what the weather's like mm. and stuff like that. Okay, so that's interesting because I commented that I didn't like the bread as much as the Dara bread. Ah, I have no clear memories of the Dara bread, but mm. um, Cafe Omai, I feel like, Sometimes it's crusty, and I can see that it's the amount of crusty people would like, but every now and then I get something that's a bit softer, which is what I like. I like a soft, fresh bread boy. Okay. Mm. I feel like the Dara one was pretty soft, too. Yeah. Um, yeah, nothing like, no no crazy, bitey, cut-up-my-mouth bread. And what do you think of the crackling pork one? Oh, crackling pork was interesting because mm. it was like it changed as we were moving through the bar me. <laughs> so it's like, at the beginning, there was like this bit of crackling where I was wanting to say something about how it seemed kind of uh, rooted in the real and earthy. But then as we got through, it's like we got more of this goo, like a marinade goo from the outside of the pork became incorporated into the mayo and the pate and also like these crispier bits of crackling, Mm. which tasted a bit different and certainly had a very different texture. A stronger flavor because they were a little bit... um... A little bit toasted, yeah. Mm. The the end was more goo forward. <laughs> oh, and I told you that my favourite food is goo. Yeah, which I wanted to know more about immediately. Um, this, I think this is like the the other end of me being averse <laughs> to things that are too crunchy, which is part of why I don't like chips that much. Ah, so like um like favourite goos that come to mind are like <laughs> um, mashed potato. And Good ice goo. cream. Mm-hmm. Wow, these are great goose. And yeah, baked custard, and mm. creme brulee. Yeah, this is all making sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now yeah. I'm trying to think of like what my favorite. I can't do this. Like I have no idea what my favorite like food concept is. Curry. Uh-huh. Yeah, like that's not so, like I feel like goo is a real base element, and I'm kind of like oh, trying. Oh, curry, curry is uh, goo too. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Oh. As a possible favorite goo. That could be my favorite goo. Like doll is yeah. goo. Ooh. Yeah, I think curry might be my favorite goo. Yeah. yeah. Do you count sauces as goose? Like mayo. mayo. Yeah, mayo is a favorite goo. It's quintessential goo. Yeah. About like Quince paste, tomato sauce. Mm. I don't know. Pate. Goo. Goo. Mm. Good. Goo goo dolls? Too no. much goo. No. <laughs> There's two goos. It's too much. No. One goo too many. <laughs> goo too far. <laughs> what did you think of the crackling pork? I I thought it was fine, and look, you know, maybe I'm a bit biased because we were like three barn mees deep at that point, mm-hmm. so I was starting to like fill up a little bit. But um, I thought it was just kind of fine. I'd, I'd give it a fine out of ten. I think that yeah. last one. I thought I was like, gonna like it more than I did. Like I yeah. am, I love pork, and mm. I particularly like 
uh, quite fatty pork, so crackling, mm. um, pork belly, things like that. Mm. I really like the flavour of pork fat, I guess. The, the, the pork crackling was quite rich and yeah. I liked it. I think that maybe it's just because I had two really good ones at the start and maybe I just was like, kind of had them really colouring my opinion of a third. Mm. I think people like absolutely lose their shit about the idea of the crackling pork bun meat yeah. because they tend to, in, mm. in my opinion, fetishise um, crackling. Yeah. yeah. And totally. I'm, I'm like, and I said, I'm not here to yuck anybody's yum, but mm. I'm just not really into crackling in that way and never have been. It's fun. No, you know what? Your my relationship with getting crackling on a barn me is exactly what you just described, and I'm just like, actually, I you know I get it all the time. But now that I think about it, I don't know if I really like it that much. Because like the idea is like, yeah, if you're eating lots of goos, you'd want something with like a different texture in there, so that'd be really cool. But you're already in something fairly crunchy anyway. Yeah, there's so the, like, yeah. like I love carrot yeah. on bun me. Um, yeah. the the cucumber mm. on the bun me's from Oh My I noted was like a really nice crunchy cucumber, like yes. a fine yeah. slice yeah. situation. Cool. So there's yeah, there's plenty of those textures mm. going on. Did I end up saying that the crackling pork was more toothsome? You did use the word toothsome. Yeah, there was some textural stuff going on with the crackling pork one mm. that I didn't mind. But that was even before I got to the crunchy part. Mm. Yeah, I, I guess it was interesting texturally, but flavor-wise, I was all about the barbecue pork for sure. Yeah, I think out of the two, the spices me. coming through. Barbecue pork. Same. I, yeah, I'm surprised myself in preferring the barbecue pork. Well. Well, I'm really proud that I gave you the correct recommendation because <laughs> nothing gives me more joy than telling other people what to do and being right. <laughs> So then we went to Mrs. Lou's and we got the pork there. Yeah. And it was very different again. Mm. It was, I thought looking at it it, and then tasting it as well, it was like really quite heavy on the five spice in mm. like a really good way, in my opinion. Yes. Yeah. Oh, I didn't take a photo of that one. That was yeah. the main thing that stood, stood out to me was like just the, the spices, the spices. Yeah. It was much more like the meat was more flavored. Mm. It had had more flavorings added to the meat. Um, which tastes great. The carrot okay. isn't done as finely as at um, Cafe of Mine. Yes, mm. true. Which I object to. You don't like that chunky carrot? You want that thin carrot? I want a thin carrot. Mm. I'm a sophisticated lady. Mm. I need but, a finely shredded carrot. But like not grated. That mm, would be... No. It's like the carrot at um, Cafe of Mine was like matchsticks, I yeah, think. Right. Yeah. yeah. And what do you think about the bread roll for the Mrs. Lou's one? Bread roll was fine, um, nothing exceptional, no complaints. It was just good. It was a perfectly cromulent uh, mm. barn meat, I think. Eight, 850 for that one. Same. I mean, once again, maybe it's because it was the last one that we had I and reckon, I was filling up a bit. But yeah. um, it was fine. The flavour was really nice. I thought the flavours coming mm. through in the way that they did the pork was... That yeah. might be like... It's not necessarily my favourite bun meat all round, but mm. that might have been my favourite meat from Mrs. So now we need to decide which is the best one. Mm. Oh. So we're going to wrestle. No. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> we've only got four. Normally when we bracket battle, we have a lot more options and we have to go two by two. Okay. Yeah. How are we going to do this? Are we just going to pick our faves? I think maybe what if we all just say what our fave one is. And in my mind, intuitively, what I want to go to is what bun meat would I recommend to somebody that I love? Mm. Okay. Mm. Count of three. Three. Mm. Two, Two, one, Dara. Dara. Oh, my. Oh. Hey, there we go. <laughs> yeah. Double Dara and one Cafe Oh My. Cafe Oh My barbecue pork for yep. me. Okay. No, but Dara I, was I like it. crushing it out there. I think it was also because it was so cheap. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. And considering how good it was, if I like, 
I genuinely think also I preferred it to all of them, ignoring mm. the fact that it was the cheapest. Mm. Really rich flavor, like the the mayo and the pate with a little bit of chili in there, combined with the the, the pork ball. Mm. Like, uh, yeah, just doing so much good stuff. And then it's five bucks, yeah. and it's kind of out of the way. So I always like it when it seems like a bit se- like a bit of a secretive thing is really cool. Okay. Uh, yeah, I don't yeah, know the whole next thing. Next to the Dara train station. Yeah, so you know you can always zip out there on PT if you want and grab yourself <laughs> a barn me. But like, I would recommend that to anyone who can who's around that area. We're going to have to do a follow-up on this where we go out and have the actual um, Scotts Road takeaway. Yeah. Barn me. That's true. And see if it just blows. Water. I yeah. know. It'll be such a shame that we have to eat more barn me. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Terrible. But well, um, And so you you as well, you're all about the... I'm all about the Dara one. Yeah. Yeah. That was my fave. I just didn't think the meat was that special, like the slices of the pork. It was fine. It's not. I just felt like the barbecue-y spicy. You're I'm probably a, right. I'm a bit of an undertaster as well, so I want a bit more, um, you know, excitement. Mm. Okay, you need stronger flavors. Yeah, I sure do. My, fa- really... my favorite food is vinegar. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it was goo. Vinegar can be a goo. <laughs> I can have lots of favorites. Yeah. True. Um, uh, oh, shit, what was I going to say? I'm a gum idiot. <laughs> oh, um, the flavor of the meat. Uh, <laughs> the flavor. <laughs> and I want to kiss an elephant's butt. <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> okay. The ultimate bun me would be to get the Mrs. Lou's meat and put it on the Dara. Um. Barn me. I thought you were going to say make the sandwiches have sex. <laughs> yeah, they do. And then whatever child they have, you eat the child. <laughs> <laughs> but we can also use the cafe on my bread. How about that? You know, we can do this though. Yeah. Oh my God. You guys should do it. We can make like a- Oh my God. Okay. 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 <laughs> next time. Next time. Okay. Here's what we're going to do. Okay. We're going to go to Cafe Omai. Yes. We're going to get a barbecue pork bun me. Yes. We'll pull all of the meat out of it. Then we'll go to Dara Takeaway, get their bun me, mm. pull their garbage meat out, leave the pork ball in, but wow. then put the five spice stuff in, eat that, and face it off with the Scots Road Takeaway. Oh, that would be cool. Bun me. That's okay. the bracket battle. It's a bracket battle in two parts. Okay. <laughs> I'm also going to claim it. for today that the winner is Dara because both Zach and I voted for it. Oh, yeah, I absolutely concede that point. Okay, oh. good. I'm the Justice Kirby of this judgment. <laughs> I, I just want to win Which something. means that while you guys win, I'm obviously better and right and more popular. Uh-huh. Okay, yeah. Thank, thanks for covering that. Yeah. <laughs> very quickly. I have seen a picture of Justice Kirby. I know what he looks like, but in my head I am seeing pink. Kirby, the yeah. pink ball, <laughs> sitting it's behind poyo. the thing yeah. with a little, little tappy... <laughs> He just inhales the he just inhales the the person going to jail. I think I've been able to find this quite quickly. There's an article here that's classic Kirby, um, Justice Kirby's best court comments, and I'm going to find the BMX one for you because that is um, a classic. Um, I'm excited. I have no idea who Justice Kirby is. Oh my God, Zach! Can you draw a picture of Kirby being a judge? Yes. Yes. There we go. Oh. Zach is a very good illustrator, by oh, the way. Gosh. We didn't say that in the introduction. Oh, that's okay. Um, as well as having a food podcast, Zach draws good. I draw good. I'm primarily here to talk about podcasting and eating barn mees, but sometimes I draw pictures of stuff <laughs> uh, that that exists. And I'm going to make him give me a free drawing of Kirby being a lawyer. Right. No, a being judge. a judge. Stay okay. tuned. So hard pivot. Um, <laughs> here's, here's a little excerpt from um, Jocelyn V. Berryman, 2002. 
Um, and Justice Kirby says, could you explain to me what a BMX bike is? My... <laughs> <laughs> my- my rather cloistered life has prevented my ever getting to know what that form of bicycle is. <laughs> oh, it's so and Mis- Mr. Douglas says, I join with your honour. I have had to find out. Your honour, it is a smaller form of bike than the conventional rally bike or the sort of bike we were used to in our youth. It is a squat form of bike, which in modern times, in the last decade or two, has been utilised for quick performance use by persons usually, as in this case, on tracks which have mounds which one speeds up towards and jumps from place to place. So it is a form of performance bike within a confined environment. Justice Kirby says, I see. Oh, I tell a lie. <laughs> this was Leyden versus Kabulchashire Council 2007. Wow, that was only 13 years ago? <laughs> It sounds like it was written 150 years ago by time-travelling aliens. Yes. Thank you so much for coming on this journey with us today, Zach. No, thanks so much. I had a really good time, and thanks for letting me come along with you guys. Much appreciated. And where can people find your podcast? Oh, uh, it's on Spotify, Cruel and Unusual Nourishment, kind of where all good podcasts are consumed. Um, But you can also find us on Instagram at CruelPod. CruelPod. Yeah. Such a good name. Such a good name. The end. (laughs) (laughs) The best fun me was the friends we made along the way. (laughs) Fun me. (laughs) Funny me. So now it's time for our final segment, which is going to be hyperlocal news. I love hyperlocal news. Um, I've been hearing that people are people are into it. Yeah. Which is nice to know. Yeah. Because it is so specific that I worried that um, people wouldn't actually enjoy it at all. Everybody, it would just be for us. Everybody loves no news news. Okay, good. Good. So I'm not in the group. I have a friend in the Facebook local community group around new farm area yeah and there's been a whole bunch of reports over the last few months of um venues cafes um shops getting plants stolen oh so like people coming along pulling the plants out of pots or taking the whole pot and just walking off (laughs) um there's been like there's been a few where there's been like security camera footage as well, and they put them up in the group saying, can you help us identify this person who stole our plants? I know about plant thieves. I mean, there's a difference between taking a little pup off a succulent and, like, taking a whole plant. My mum used to carry around, like, a really big handbag. <laughs> and she had, like, a full-size set of secateurs. Oh, my God. Like, But she wouldn't pull two the plant boys. out of the ground, She wouldn't right? pull the plant out of the ground, No. So there's take that. A cutting. Um, she would take quite sizable cuttings. Um, setting aside that behavior, I will say that I know one other person, and I was with them when we were. It was a number of years ago. Mm-hmm. We were by Riverside. It was like near Fridays, and she took a whole plant <laughs> out of. The, she was quite drunk. Yeah, and she took a whole plant out of the ground, one of the planter boxes oh at this, God. you know, corporate sort of setup. And then the police stopped <gasps> and she's holding this plant. <laughs> she's just pulled out of the ground 
and they said they were saying to her put the plant back and she she was saying no i've liberated it i'm liberating it <laughs> sure buddy and i'm there going just do what they say yeah it's the plant put it back in the plot so she put it back in the plot they left she took it out again yeah she left it at my house and it died oh what a waste of time i and know plant. the one that i've been most impressed by was a woman who stole a bunch of plants from New Farm Deli and she showed up <laughs> with boxes and bags appropriately sized so that she could pull each plant out of the soil, put it inside the box, put it inside the bag and carry them off. She There was a lot of pre-planning there. There's also been people with those little shopping trolley carts coming along and taking all the plants out, which makes me think that they're selling them. Perhaps. Oh, God. Yeah. Like, get a pre-established, pretty healthy-looking plant, stick it in a pot and sell it at the markets or something. You could. Mm. We, we know somebody yeah. who knows somebody yeah. who, during pandemic, was really upset with how their workplace was treating everybody, took a period of leave, lent right into their gardening thing, mm. and started selling propagated plants. Yeah. And earned like seventeen grand over two months. Did they really? Apparently. Wow. Well, it's just hyper local news. It's unco- that is very hyper local. So hyper local that it's entirely unconfirmed and basically just gossip that I heard. <laughs> um, I had a whole bunch of succulent plants stolen from out the front of my place. That was me. <sighs> I'm so mad at you. <laughs> what I had like grown these succulents inside the house and they looked beautiful and then I repotted them all in a big pot together all these yeah. different kinds of plants it looked amazing and uh, one morning I got up and I went out there and they'd all been pulled out of the ground mm. out of the dirt I was so upset so rude <sighs> but I will say that the blood of my mother runs through my veins and like I can't not look around and think about all the things that I could steal I absolutely encourage people to take cuttings and to take the little, the little pops or succulents so that you can regrow them and stuff. Mm. But don't take an entire plant out of the ground. I think that's not cool. The plant is also not going to enjoy it. It's an interesting angle. They don't, they don't like being ripped out of the ground and then shoved into another pot um, like that. So my hyperlocal news mm. is that I moved house. Oh, yeah. And um, near my new house, it's an apartment. I'm going to call it a house forever. Okay. Um, near my new house, um, I saw a rock <laughs> covered in eyes. Cool. Have I showed you? No, show me. Okay. Is it an Illuminati rock? Um, no, I think it's a biblically correct angel. Ah! One of the big wheels? The big wheel eye one? Yeah, exactly. Wow. It's like in a little garden bed. They've stuck googly eyes on it as well. And painted it. And painted it. It's beautiful. It's amazing. That's so cool. It makes me want to make lots of dumb shit to hide around my neighborhood to delight others. Like when you find those little fairy gardens with little doors on trees and things. Well, our mutual friend's been sending me pictures when he goes on walks of all of these clusters of spoons. People are like drawing faces on spoons and <laughs> planting cool. them in the row in the in the ground. This is in Melbourne though, so I suspect everybody's very bored or has yeah. been very bored. And when they were limited to only doing little walks uh, within certain spaces. All right, 
Does that bring us to the end of the episode? Yeah, let's do it. Let's no more news? I'm hungry. Okay, it's time for us to go and eat and drink and be merry. Thank you for listening. I hope you have enjoyed our 11th episode. Oh, that's exciting. Yes. Thanks again to Zach for joining us. Thanks, Zach. And I hope you will join us next time in a fortnight. Add us on Instagram. Uh, we are at Online Mall Patrol. You can also check out the website, onlinemallpatrol.com, where we have our full show notes with links and pictures and all of that jazz. And also send me a picture of your cat. Cool. Yeah. We would love to see your cats. Yeah. Okay, bye. Bye. Bye.